Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Make sure to check out the video version of this podcast at youtube.com slash game of microphones. See everything you're missing. Through them, you imagine you cheat the great darkness of its victory. You persist forever in some form or another. As if they would keep you from the dust. Riding their dead horses. Hunting with their packs of pale spiders big as hounds. You're listening to Game of Microphones. And now... It's your host, Sir Duncan the Fearsome. Well met, Trollops and Truth Tellers, and welcome to Game of Microphones. I'm Lord Sterling, Sir Duncan the Fearsome, fire-breathing shadow lurker. And welcome to episode 126. On this episode, we're covering House of the Dragon, season 1, episode 6, The Princess and the Queen. I'm riding solo tonight, so we're going to mix things up a bit and change up the format. Instead of a top five, we'll be going chronologically through the episode, and I'll be giving you my thoughts along the way. And in case you're not already aware, this podcast is from the perspective of someone who's current on the show. That means you've seen all previously aired episodes of Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon. If not, there's still time to be voluntarily roasted alive by Dragonfire, so you don't have to hear these spoilers. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Fear not, friends, if you haven't read Fire and Blood, which covers this period of the Targaryen reign, we'll only be discussing events from the Dance of Dragons that have already come to pass on House of the Dragon, and we'll take caution not to spoil drama that's yet to come on the show. And if you're enjoying our coverage of House of the Dragon and our complete series rewatch of Game of Thrones, which covers every episode in depth, please consider taking the black and helping us to get out of the red by subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash gompodcast or making a one-time donation to keep our show alive at paypal.me slash gompodcast. 
You can also support us without spending any silver stags by clicking on our Amazon affiliate link located in this podcast's description and at the bottom of gameofmicrophones.com for your online shopping. It costs you nothing and we'll get a little kickback from Amazon for sending you their way. Thanks. Without any further ado, let's jump into our coverage of House of the Dragon Season 1, Episode 6, The Princess and the Queen. Wait, what's this? A raven from a faraway land. Hey, Duncan, it's Lord Zach. Uh, sorry, I couldn't make the recording this week. We'll be back and better than ever next week. Oh, yeah. Wow, what a great episode. So much drama, so much tension, shifting allegiances, uh, new alliances being formed, family drama. Wow. Craziness. We got dragons. We got <laughs> dragon pit action. We got dragon training action. We got the dragon keeper, uh, I think is what they're called. That old grizzled veteran guy with the scars all over his face. Yeah, he'd been around dragons for a hot minute. <laughs> a block a time or two. Uh, advising the young princes on uh, how to command their dragons. Really cool detail. We got Vagar. Yeah. Let's go. Vagar. Wow. Probably easily my favorite dragon just because the size and just age. And man, that scene between Vagar and Lena. In Pentos, man, that was just brutal. And but she got she got agency. She got to choose how she went out. Like she said before, she wanted a dragon rider's death, so that's what she got. Um, lots yeah. of parallels, you know, and contrasts to uh, the pilot with what happened with Lena versus Emma in the the, the episode one. Mm. So. Yep. Man, so much, you know, I can't, I'm not going to send you a 30-minute recording, but pretty crazy episode. Still Team Rhaenyra, ride or die, <laughs> let's go. You know, okay, she had, she had, she's had some kids with Harwin Strong, but officially they're Laenor Valarians, so <laughs> they're Valarians, baby. When they take the throne, they'll be Targaryens. Let's go. Don't be paying attention to their hair color. It doesn't matter. Uh, Allison <laughs> has got some issues. She needs to chill out. Um, let Viserys be king and know your place. So, uh, yeah, I'm still Team Rhaenyra. Al, uh, Duncan is going to have some good counterpoints, I think. But that'll be fun going forward. So, um, enjoy the show and um, we'll see you all next week. Yeah, thank you for sending a message, Zach. Hope you're having a great vacation. Wow. <laughs> Holy hell, boys. <laughs> what the hell? Okay, so episode starts off with a with a bang, with with a crazy birth scene and the introduction of the new actress playing Rhaenyra. And wow, they did not hold back with the Foley effects. Watching with headphones for this <laughs> this rewatch here. Man, you can hear all of the uh all of the happenings of the birth as it occurs. All kinds of squelches and <laughs> crazy sounds. I don't even want to know what these sounds, <laughs> what they, what's going on down there. But it sounds painful. And uh, wow, brutal way to start off the episode. Kudos to Emma Darcy, the actress, for w being willing to have her first appearance uh, looking all rugged and sweaty and chaotic and messy brutal 
And uh, she's jumping right into it right off the bat. Craziness. And we learn that it's a boy, healthy and kicking like a goat. Great phrase. I bet they could have told that in utero too. Boom, boom, kick in the stomach. <laughs> so this is good news. A true born heir to cement her claim. <laughs> or is it? <laughs> and what a performance by Emma Darcy here as we see all of her emotions in this scene running across her face, face from pain and nervousness to love and relief and everything in between and a fine piece of acting here. But oh no, the baby's presence is requested by Queen Alicent immediately and Rhaenyra seems worried. Why? She asks and first time watching I was thinking, oh man, the queen's trying to isolate the baby from, <laughs> from the mother. This could be dangerous considering Otto Hightower's remarks about how the children of these of the queen and would be in danger if Rhaenyra be, is crowned. Their mere presence being a threat to her heirhood. The same could be uh, said in reverse. And so, first time watching, I was thinking, "Oh man, she's concerned for the safety of her baby." But now rewatching it, I'm thinking, "Oh man, maybe she's just more concerned about being busted." Because if you look at this baby with his dark hair. And his pale skin, it's not looking like the father. And so there is a lot at stake with the birth of this child, and she is not happy about it being summoned immediately to the queen. So Rhaenyra decides she's going to bring the baby herself, getting up and standing to leave uh, immediately following the birth. This is crazy. And the, oh, the sound effects continue. As she changes her clothes quickly, the camera pans to the baby and it zooms up and we see the, the nurse tying off the umbilical cord with a string and snipping it with a pair of scissors. And <laughs> this is pretty hardcore to watch. So this is where Lenor shows up and there are a couple differences from the book version of this that are seemingly designed to make this a little bit more crystal clear that these babies are bastards that Rhaenyra has been having. For instance, Princess Rhaenys in the book has dark hair because her mother was a Baratheon. So having the babies have black hair when there are Baratheons close in the family tree wouldn't necessarily be too much of a red flag, but they've removed that trait in Rhaenys, given her the typical Targaryen golden white gold hair. And they've changed the race of Laenor Valerion from looking very Targaryen-esque with super silver blonde hair. They've cast this character with a, an African-American actor. And I'm guessing that this is to, again, make the appearance of the child or of the three children a little less ambiguously bastards for this version to clear up any confusion that may have existed otherwise. So the castle is bustling as the happy couple walks from the birthing chamber to go see Queen Alicent. And I'm wondering if this is part of Alicent's plan here is to make sure that all these people who are in the castle see the child as they go, go by so that rumors will start to spread that Lenor may not be the father. 
And in typical Game of Thrones fashion, I know this is House of the Dragon, but in typical Game of Thrones fashion, the bells start tolling, indicating that something not good is going to be happening. <laughs> and as they're walking along, Lenor is asking, what could she possibly want? I thought we were past this, indicating that this conflict has been ongoing since the last time we saw this bunch 10 years ago at Rhaenyra and Lenor's wedding. <laughs> when Alicent came strolling down the aisle in her green dress and staring daggers at the princess. <laughs> and like a trooper, Rhaenyra is pushing through the pain as she walks up these stairs <laughs> on her way to go see Alicent. And Lenore is trying to get her to turn back, but she's like, no, like I will not give her the satisfaction. Not showing any signs of weakness to the queen. So they go up the stairs, go around the map room, which doesn't have a map yet in this series, and they enter the Queen's chambers. And here we have our first introduction to the new actress playing Queen Alicent, who looks lovely in another green dress. <laughs> and she's she's surprised to see Rhaenyra showing up, and she's like, you should be resting. And Rhaenyra is clearly paranoid for the baby's health and says, you would like that, wouldn't you? <laughs> but she ends up accepting a cushion and taking a seat and oh, King Viserys shows up and he's looking rugged. He's aged a little bit in the past 10 years and now he's got hair at about the same density as Gollum from Lord of the Rings, just wisps coming down on all sides of his head. Pretty brutal. And it's hard to tell from this brief interaction here, but he's missing his left arm. So that infection of leprosy on his left arm must have caused... It must have gotten really bad because they amputated it. And woof, that, <laughs> what a brutal situation. So as Viserys is hobbling around holding the baby with one arm, Alicent asks the couple if they've named the child. And as Rhaenyra starts to say we haven't talked about it yet, <laughs> Lenor blurts out that the baby's name is Joffrey, which is hilarious. Apparently in the books, he attempted to name their firstborn Joffrey, but was overruled by Corlys, who would not allow it. Hence, the child's name, Jaceris. Jacaris, it looks like it's, it's a written. And if there were any doubts before, Queen Alicent makes it clear that she knows exactly what's going on here as she tells Lenore to keep trying. And one of these days, maybe there'll be one that looks like him. <laughs> this is crazy. And as they leave the chamber, they're walking down the hallway and Rhaenyra is mad that Lenore chose to name the baby without even talking to her about it, <laughs> especially considering his seeming lack of interest in their, <laughs> in their relationship and everything lately. And Sir Kristen Cole turns to watch them leave as Rhaenyra leaves a, a bloody trail down the hallway. And it's at this moment where Lenor turns back, looking at the blood trail, and he makes eye contact with Kristen Cole, the man who killed his former lover, Joffrey. And there's a tense moment as they stare at each other. And it's now that I'm wondering, <laughs> how did Sir Kristen, how is he still a, a Kingsguard? How did he get away with the murder at the wedding? He must have came up with some story about Joffrey threatening the queen or something like this. But I'm surprised that Lenor didn't have enough sway to to over to you know counter any comments or reasoning given by Kristen Cole. Somehow the queen has kept him out of trouble, it seems. So as they arrive back to Rhaenyra's chamber, we see Sir Harwin Strong hanging out with the children and playing. 
the Lord Commander of the City Watch, I believe he is. And he is just hanging out in the princess's chamber. Kind of bizarre. But I'm sure nobody will notice anything unusual about that. And dragon eggs must be relatively abundant at this point because the two boys have chosen an egg for the new baby from the dragon pit, which they have in kind of like a cooking pot covered brazier type thing, which smokes as they open it. The dragon eggs are really cool in this show for sure. And upon rewatching this, Sir Harwin seems awful excited to meet Joffrey and doesn't take, doesn't waste any time before asking to hold him. And this is foreshadowing his eagerness to be a father figure to the children, which comes back to bite him later as he's lured into attacking Sir Criston. And the kids want to hold the baby, but they're escorted out by Lenor to head back to the dragon pit. And as Lenor is leaving, he shoots Sir Harwin a knowing glance, nodding at him like, Enjoy, real father of the baby. So next we find ourselves in the dragon pit. And oh man, this is cool. We're finally getting to see the dragon pit. And it has these ramps built into it, which can be raised or lowered. And as the scene starts out, we see Vermax crawling up the ramp with his two ar- front wing arms, boom, boom, stepping along as he <laughs> climbs upward into the main arena part of the dragon pit. And these ramps kind of remind me of the Roman Colosseum, which would have entries built into the floor like this for the animals that were stored beneath the floor of the Colosseum. They would have elephants, tigers, all kinds of stuff. You probably remember the scene in Gladiator where the tiger comes running out and swipes at Maximus Decimus Meridius (laughs) as he's competing in the gladiatorial games. And there's some cool sound effects here with the the dragon's vocalizations. Kind of dog-like, kind of beast-like. Pretty cool stuff. And this whole event here seems to be part of the process of familiarizing the dragons with their bonded masters. And so Prince Jaceres is meeting with Vermax to practice controlling him and giving him orders and everything. And it sort of reminds me of how King Viserys talks about being scared of Balerion, the Black Dread. And similarly, Prince Jaceres is <laughs> very scared looking of Vermax in the scene as he orders him, Dohiris, <laughs> trying to get him to calm down and relax and obey. As we covered before, Dohiris meaning serve, the imperative <laughs> of Dohiragon. And I'm thinking as I'm watching this, this dragon has enough firepower to kill this sheep or whatever that they bring in here. He could kill any of these kids. Why do they have all of the royal children standing together in front of a barely trained dragon? Seems like a recipe for disaster. <laughs> not Probably not the best idea. Plan better, guys. So we get to meet this dragon trainer here who's pretty cool. Looks kind of grizzled, like he's been around dragons and maybe got some flame, a little bit of flames to the face. Seems all scarred up. And he only speaks Valyrian here, High Valyrian, to just Ceres. 
which is pretty interesting. And they they bring out this poor little goat who's bleating and cheerful and doesn't seem to recognize the imminent danger that he's being put in. And they tether him to this uh, plinth-like thing nearby. And of course, the first thing that pops into my head is Jurassic Park, the way that they bait the Tyrannosaurus with a goat and they put it out there. They put the goat <laughs> in the in the foliage, tied, tethered to the pole. What's gonna happen to the goat? He's gonna eat the goat. And nothing happens. And then later on, we come back to that same spot, and the goat is suddenly gone. <laughs> Where's the goat? The Tyrannosaurus flings one of the legs at the Jeeps that they're riding. (laughs) Great movie. Man, I got to watch that again. It's been a while. So upon seeing the goat, Vermax gets all excited and starts creeping over towards it and making all those cool little noises. And the goat seems way too chill. Uh, This goat should be freaking out by this point, and it's not, which is a flaw with this scene, in my opinion. That goat should be panicking and screeching and sensing the imminent danger of the (laughs) crazy reptilian beast that's crawling over towards it. But Jocerius is displaying difficulty being able to control his dragon here. And the dragon trainer has to speak up and get Vermax to chill. He's like, chill, Vermax, chill! And Vermax screeches, turns towards him. He's like, why? Why are you interrupting me? And screeches towards the group. (laughs) And he tells Jocerius the dragon trainer, that he must develop mastery over his dragon and it's being translated by another guy uh, standing next to him. And he's only speaking in in Valyrian, which is pretty cool. And uh, he tells him, you have to develop mastery and control over the dragon just like Aegon has with Sunfire. And so we learn that Aegon also has a dragon named Sunfire, which is pretty awesome. Can't wait to meet that guy. Pretty cool name. Makes me think of the Pontiac Sunfire. (laughs) Convertible. Pretty fun little whip. And another little blonde boy is watching this looking sullen and upset. Because as we learn, he does not have a dragon. And I think I said that was a dude standing next to the dragon trainer translating, but I'm pretty sure it's a chick, so sorry about that. And so Jocerius asks for permission to give the, the command, Dracaris, and excitedly gives the command and the dragon roasts the goat and starts ripping away at its flesh. Pretty epic. And it's at this point where the boys announce to Prince Amund that they have a surprise for him. So they lure him over to the rampway where they tell him that, you know, you're the only one of us that doesn't have a dragon, but we found one for you. And up from the... (laughs) Jocerius runs down the ramp and grabs a creature that comes loping up And no, it's not a dragon. It's a pig wearing wings and a big old tail (laughs) who Aegon calls the Pink Dread, a play on Balerion's nickname, the Black Dread, the most fearsome dragon of all time, ridden by Aegon during the conquest and most recently by King Viserys. And Aegon seems like a little shit. Like, it seems like it was his idea to come up with this whole scheme and torment his brother Amund, and it's pretty mean. It's pretty mean, man. But who knows what's going to happen. Maybe we'll see little Amund end up taking a dragon of his own. So they start, all the boys start laughing, and as Amund is like, oh, <laughs> like a pin popped his balloon, and 
They run off laughing and leave him there alone without any supervision somehow at the mouth of the dragon pit where all of the ultra deadly creatures are. Again, poor planning. Somebody keep an eye on these children, huh? And he stands there and he's looking down into the darkness down the ramp and there's torches burning off in the distance and echoing sounds and I'm sitting there like, do it, do it telling him, you go down there. I want to see what it's like down there. And I didn't think he was actually going to, but he does. He decides to go down into the dragon pit. And man, is it cool. He creeps down and he's holding onto the stones of the wall as he, as he sneaks through the dragon pit and the wind is blowing around him. There must be some kind of crazy air current down there. And he comes around a corner and a dragon is lurking in the darkness in the distance. And it cranes his neck, its neck to look towards him. And you can see fire building inside of its throat. Epic graphics. And shoots flames up that just roil and cascade along the ceiling. As he stands there in fright, <laughs> looking horrified into the face of this monstrous creature. And he falls on his, onto his back and scrapes his way up to his feet, to fall, only to fall again and runs off into the darkness. And the scene cuts to a different one. But uh, we're, I'm wondering at this point, what dragon is this? The internet seems to suggest it could be Dreamfire, that it could be Vermithor. For all we know, it could be Sunfire. I would like to know what dragon this is. People online are also drawing comparisons between its looks as well as those with Drogon. And so they're suggesting that Stolen dragon eggs at some point down the line from this dragon may have gotten into the hands of Lirio Mopantis, who gifts them to Daenerys Targaryen at her wedding with Khal Drogo. This could be the parent of Drogon that we're seeing here. And so next we find Allison spending some quality time with her daughter, Helena, who <laughs> seems to be sort of Rain Man, <laughs> bizarre potentially um, autistic or something like this. And she's counting the legs and rings of a centipede and calculating the numbers out loud. And Allison seems highly bored as she inquires further. Helena mentions that it has eyes, but she doesn't think that it can see. And Allison asks why, and she's like, it's beyond our understanding. And... Allison agrees, saying, yes, some things just are. And I think that as she said that, she was sort of thinking about Helena herself and how the way Helena's mind works and the way she thinks is beyond Allison. She doesn't seem to comprehend or relate to it at all, seeming bored and impatient in sitting here dealing with her daughter. Not the best vibes. And so Prince Amond is delivered to the Queen's chambers, <laughs> looking all haggard and ashy. <laughs> and she learns that he's been <laughs> sneaking around in the dragon pit again. So he, he doesn't have a dragon, but he seems to be obsessed with dragons and very upset that he doesn't have one of his own. And he's lamenting to his mother that they gave me a pig and that the, boy, the other boys were making fun of him. And Allison does not seem happy about this, although she in encourages him that someday he will have a dragon. And little Helena is sitting over here holding the centipede, continuing making ob observations about it. But certain things that she's saying don't seem to necessarily be about the centipede. 
she seems to know what Amund had has done, saying, "Oh, he, he's been at it again. He's done it again." And as uh, Alicent is telling him, "You will have a dragon one day." Helena says something, looking at the centipede that doesn't seem to apply to the centipede, saying, "He'll have to close one eye." Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Champion and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet when you register with BetMGM. You'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code Champion and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See betmgm.com for terms. Twenty-one plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call one eight hundred GAMBLER. Promotion. Promotional offer not available in Washington D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. And so it cuts to Alicent <laughs> visiting Viserys to complain about the incident to him. And uh, <laughs> she does what a lot of parents do, which is assume that their own children are innocent. As she says that his grandchildren are savages and, uh, and menaces, which is hilarious because Aegon and Amond are his children with her. So when... Alicent refers to his grandchildren. She's specifically referring to Gisaris and the other <laughs> child of Rhaenyra, whose name I don't remember at this moment. But even though Viserys, his wits seem to be failing him somewhat throughout this episode as he uh, ages, he seems to know what really happened here as he suggests, are you sure it wasn't our Aegon who put the boys up to it? He knows it was Aegon. Aegon is a little shit, it seems. <laughs> a little wanker, <laughs> and, <laughs> as we'll see later on. And so uh, Viserys is inherently suspicious of Aegon and not so much the other boys who do seem to be a little bit more innocent than Aegon is. Aegon seems to be the instigator, the mischievous lad. So things get serious here as Alicent says, it's a wonder that their eggs ever hatched at all. And Viserys, <laughs> he's like, and why is that? And Alicent says, you know damn well why it is. Come on. And it, it, Viserys just refuses to acknowledge the blatant obvious fact that Rhaenyra's children are hers, but they are not Lenor's. And she she basically refuses to drop it. So Viserys sends Eddard, his <laughs> model-building companion, out of the room. And Eddard, it's cool that we get that name here, an interesting Westerosi name with certain significance to viewers of Game of Thrones as Eddard is the true full name of Ned Stark. Ned 
being a nickname for Eddard, apparently, which is <laughs> interesting. It doesn't seem like a logical nickname per se to be to be derived from Eddard, but you know, it is. So we'll just uh, go with it. But Alicent comes around the table to him and she's like, I have raised this matter before and you forbade me to speak of it. But, you know, but she can't hold her tongue any longer. And she tells him to have one child like that is a mistake. But three, it's an insult to you, to the throne. And so she's saying that basically since these children are bastards and not true Targaryens at all or Valerians, that she's surprised that their eggs even hatched. And she says, you know, what What she's saying, you know, one is a mistake. She's like, yeah, one could be understood. Like, people have lapses in moral judgment. They make bad decisions. She could have been impregnated once with a bastard, and we could overlook it because it would be a mistake and an understandable mistake. But three, three times? And I think this might be why she sent for the baby to be brought to her at the beginning of the episode because she wanted to v- see the baby before any shenanigans could be could be uh, undertaken by Rhaenyra, Rhaenyra and Lenor. Given a mere half an hour, they may have already had something in the works where they could find a, a different baby to swap it out, for all we know, so they could present a baby to Viserys and Alicent that looks more the part. But Alicent, by seeing the child immediately prevented that from being able to be possible because she would then know if the baby was replaced by somebody else. But, you know, what she says here to Viserys about how it's, you know, one is a mistake, three is an insult to the throne, to you, to House Valerian and the match you battled so hard to make, not to mention the decency itself. I, it's hard to argue against this. Think about this. Viserys broke tradition. He put everything on the line, stood up for Rhaenyra, and made her his heir. He went through all this work trying to find a, a, a good marriage for her, only to have her throw it out the window by sullying herself with Kristen Cole, which he never got the truth of, but either way, we did. And she wanted to be the heir. Like, But if you want to be the heir, there's only one thing you got to do. You got to have le- a legitimate heir to pass the throne onto and it's like it's like a slap in the face to Viserys and to the queen who was was helping trying to arrange the marriage and put all this together and covered for her Alicent covered for her and you know and said that she believed Rhaenyra when when Rhaenyra told her that she hadn't had sex with Damon although she understood misunderstood it thinking that it meant she hadn't had sex at all and so Alicent ran blocking for Rhaenyra and stood up for her and and convinced Viserys that she was telling the truth, which resulted in her own father being fired and her being abandoned at court. So this is personal. Not only did she do a whole bunch of work trying to find a good match and trying to help Viserys, but Rhaenyra's lie to her, her deception cost her her father's presence and and a, a portion of her pride. She She took it really personally when she learned that she'd been lied to and that that lie had resulted in her standing up for Rhaenyra and getting her father fired and everything. And so this is an issue that's been boiling and boiling for a long time between the two of them. And Alicent is taking this as a major insult, which, which is completely understandable because, like I said, you have one job. 
as the as the heir to the throne, you need to produce a legitimate heir. And so, and she couldn't she couldn't do it. If she's so obsessed with her own with self gratification and her own uh, her own desires that she she put her own interests and desires before those of the kingdom, which to me reflects very poorly on her character as a leader, and tells me that she would not be a great leader. Good good leaders take themselves out of the equation and think about the realm first. And Rhaenyra has forsaken that sacred obligation by choosing to mother bastards, three of them to add insult to injury. And in, in doing so, effectively ending the, the Targaryen line with her. If there was a true-born son, then there could be a, a Targaryen reign that continues. But from this point on, if Rhaenyra succeeds Viserys and installs upon her death one of her children as heir to the throne, the, the kingship would be a lie. They wouldn't even be Targaryens at this point. And so Viserys would have sacrificed all of this respect. And, you know, he was motivated well to do it, to, to name Rhaenyra heir, but going out on a limb and doing so and costing him the allegiance of many bannermen, as we found out from, from Lannister, who said that, you know, everybody thinks that Aegon is going to be king. And uh, the way, you know, she he put it all in the line for her and stood up for her and repeatedly affirmed to people around her that Rhaenyra is, gonna, is the heir, don't question me. This is the way it is. And the way she repays him is by not even fulfilling her one duty to the crown to produce a legitimate offspring. It's a slap in the face. It's shameful. Uh, so I, it's hard not to understand Allison's point at this, uh, at this juncture as she's telling him that this is an insult. And so Queen Allison is dead serious as she's bringing all this up. And Viserys starts rambling about <laughs> a horse that he once had and how she escaped and was impregnated by a silver stallion from nearby. And how the, the baby came out chestnut brown. And, you know, sometimes nature just works in mysterious ways. And Allison's still like, did you see the silver stallion impregnate the, <laughs> the mayor? Like, how do you know that this is even real, that you've come to, that, you're, that, you, that the, the conclusion you're drawing is accurate? If you didn't see it happen, then how do you even know? And he's like, hmm, <laughs> well, good point, I think. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't say that, but that's what I'm thinking. So the, the silver stallion in this case is clearly representing Lenor Valerion. <laughs> and as she asks him, how, do you, how did you know? Did you witness this? <laughs> Viserys gets mad and says that the consequences of an act like you were suggesting would be dire. And so he's acknowledging that this would be bad if it were true. And I think that he's just so fixated on peace, having grown up being taught that he needed to secure the legacy of Jaehaerys, the good king, the old king, and his prolonged time of peace. That at this point in his life, he is just trying to avoid drama and, and anything chaotic, and he's just trying to maintain the peace. But if he would acknowledge the truth, then even he recognizes that it's really messed up what Rhaenyra has done here. And Viserys is just kind of exhausted by this whole dialogue. He stands up and puts his one remaining hand on Allison's shoulder and says, do not speak of this again. And kisses her on the forehead and just kind of ah, shambles off and 
in a daze, it looks like. Oh, man, this is not good. So Alicent is mad, and she goes to chill with Kristen Cole to vent, talking about how Rhaenyra flaunts her privileges and expects everybody to (laughs) pretend not to see what they're seeing, basically. And this is something that has bothered Alicent this whole time, is that she sees Rhaenyra as being highly privileged with all this opportunity in front of her, and she's just doing, making these bad decisions that are have terrible consequences, sullying herself, which could have affected her potential matches in terms of suitors, fathering bastards, which could tear the whole realm apart, turning the kingship into a lie, and the Targaryen legacy into a lie. Woo! And Sir Criston is also quite salty about his past with Rhaenyra, as he calls her brazen, and says that she's like a spider who sucks her prey dry. (laughs) It's pretty hardcore. I don't think she ever intended to wound him in the way that she did. Um, But her encouraging him and leading him to dishonor himself uh, has had a major effect on his psyche and his view towards her. Like I sort of speculated last episode, if he came to see her as a vixen who convinced him to sully himself and to uh, to abandon his vow for no good reason, it could f- develop into a, f- into a serious resentment and hate towards her, which I think we're seeing on full display at this point, as he calls her a spoiled cunt. And Alicent stops and looks at him. <laughs> Even he re- and he realizes that he he's spoken too strongly at this point, as he apologizes and says that it was beneath him. <laughs> I do not like Sir Kristen Cole in this episode. He is quite a jerk. So after composing herself, Alicent laments that all she wants is for honesty and decency to prevail, and they need to hew to that and to each other kind of cool language again, but I totally get what she's saying here. Honesty is the way to go. And in the the lies and deception of Rhaenyra and what she's doing here with mothering all these bastards and it's bad. It's really bad. It's really, really bad. And the bells toll again ominously as it cuts to <laughs> Prince Aegon's chamber. Oh, as he stands in the window and <laughs> masturbates out over King's Landing. And I know he called the uh, that pig earlier the pink dread. <laughs> but I'm thinking the real pink dread of King's Landing is, <laughs> is the penis of, of Prince Aegon here, <laughs> much to the woe of anybody who may be standing beneath his window <laughs> as he finishes what he's doing. But <laughs> before he can unleash the horror upon the pedestrians beneath, he's interrupted by Queen Alicent, who demands to know whose idea it was to give the pig to Prince Amond. Wow, so we get a really intense encounter here between Queen Alicent and Aegon, who <laughs> seems to be completely clueless about the reality of his situation and where things stand. We get a, we learn a cool nickname for Jaceris, which is Jace. Pretty badass name he's got there. And um, Alicent has to tell him, you know, as like, you don't understand, Rhaenyra's sons are your playthings for now, but... That's not going to be the way it is forever. We need to defend our own. It's one thing, you know, around home, you can cuff Amond, your brother, around as much as you want. But out in the world, 
It's different. We need to stick by each other. As things stand, Rhaenyra will ascend the throne and Jaceris Targaryen will be her heir. And and Aegon's like, so? So what? Who cares? He doesn't seem to be interested in the game at all. <laughs> Which is probably good because he seems a little sadistic. <laughs> but <laughs> but <laughs> this angers Alicent, who's like, oh, you're nearly a man grown. How is it that you can be so short-sighted? She explains, as her father did to her, if Rhaenyra comes into power, your very life could be forfeit. Aemon's as well, like our lives are in danger. And he still doesn't get it. She says she could move, Rhaenyra could move to cut off any challenge to her succession. And he's like, well, then, then I won't challenge. He's, she, she screams and grabs him by the face, lunges towards him, squeezing his face. You are the challenge. You are the challenge, Aegon, simply by living and breathing. You are the challenge! Oh. You are the challenge, Egon! Simply by living and breathing! You are the king's firstborn son. And what they know, what everyone in the realm knows, in their blood and in their bones, is that one day you will be our king. And he seems like shaken by this, shaken to his senses for the first time, apparently, because he seems completely oblivious until he sees his mom freak out and grab him by the face to let him know how serious that she is. And he's kind of sitting there as she as she releases him, leaning back like, oh my God, like, I had no idea. And she tells him, get dressed. Gator don't play no shit. You, you feel me? <laughs> and it cuts to the next scene. And it's sad because, you know, Aegon and Amond and Jaceres and and the other little one, I can't remember his name. Uh, but they all seem to be, you know, they're like effectively cousins. Um, I know they're not technically. They're like uncles and stuff like that. Weird, weird stuff. But um, they all get along. They're just kids. And they're being trained to view each other as enemies by the adults. And uh, it's... it's the conflict that will arise inevitably between all of these people is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It seems that, you know, Allison wouldn't be worried about this, this situation if Otto hadn't planted the seed in her head that her children are in danger because I don't think Rhaenyra like necessarily thinks that way. I don't think that the kids would necessarily be in danger um, just based on Rhaenyra's uh, temperament. But Otto knows that it's a possibility and seems more convinced that it is definitely true. And so he freaks out Alicent and Alicent being freaked out about that perpetuates the problem by being so worried about this conflict that it causes even more conflict with her and Rhaenyra. And now she's continuing the cycle by passing on this worry and paranoia to her own children and it's going to ruin everything. You're ruining everything! All these, these kids are just kids. They're having fun with each other. They don't care about the crown, at least at this point. And here they are being trained by the adults, at least by Alicent, to be paranoid of each other and to worry about the succession and to not trust each other. And they're dividing each other by, like, uh, it's just, it sucks. They're just, it's, it's only working to divide them. And so now it's time for a cool aerial show outside Pentos as Caraxes is flying along. And it, we first see his tail just dragging into the water and weaving back and forth across the screen. 
as he's being ridden by Daemon. And uh, as he lifts up out of the water, we see his, his cool forked tail, which I don't think we've gotten a really good view of beforehand. But a <laughs> really cool design on Caraxes here. And oh, the crowd roars as, <laughs> as the Pentashi people watch the blood worm oh, fly up over the battlements and soar through the air. And it's at this point where we see Vagar, the largest living dragon, ancient beast, hulking its way through the sky. And the graphics are so intense, and all of its uh, its bulges and folds in its skin are so vivid, and it's just gigantic. And we see that Lena, Lena Valerian, is piloting the beast. Woo, little Lena, who is so obsessed with dragons back a number of episodes ago when she was like 12 years old and <laughs> meeting with King Viserys as a potential suitor to replace the deceased Queen Emma. And she was getting all excited asking Viserys about Balerion, the Black Dread. And she had even mentioned Vagar and how rumors are being told in Spice Town that every once in a while they hear her calls, her, her sorrowful songs <laughs> as Vagar lurks out in the wilderness alone and sad after the passing of all of her siblings that she grew up with, Balerion the Black Dread and Meraxes, who was killed during the conquest. This ancient giant beast, Vagar, seems to have felt alone and sad. And so it's it's cool now seeing that she's got a new master, a new rider. <laughs> Lena tracked her down and earned her respect. This tiny little girl convincing this giant dragon to, <laughs> to submit to her and for her to be its new master. Man, that would be a cool short story or something to experience. They need to release just a bonus episode about how Lena courts Vagar. <laughs> that's, that's all I want to see, really. So cool. And so Vagar <laughs> just dwarfs Caraxes, the blood worm who's trailing along behind him, behind her at this point. And We've talked about how the, the bloodworm has these two winglets, <laughs> as Zach put it, uh, for rear legs. And the way its rear legs kind of shift in the breeze as it works to balance itself during flight, it kind of reminds me of those flying squirrels and the, the way that their rear legs look in flight as they use their, you know, their, their skin wings <laughs> to, <laughs> to stabilize themselves during flight. And so as it turns out, this is like the Blue Angels of Westeros, basically an aerial show that's being given to the Pentashi who are watching from the castle here. And Daemon is doing the look ma, no hands thing as he flies without his hands and signals to, uh, to Lena to let's get this show started. And so she soars in front and commands Vagar Dracaris and... Vagar shoots out a giant flame ball <laughs> and Daemon and Caraxes go flying through the flames and dragon fire is supposed to be like so hot that it just vaporizes you on contact basically as it as those toasted Tarleys got turned to ash in uh, in <laughs> like season seven of Game of Thrones after the loot train battle. And so it's interesting to see Damon subjecting himself to potentially being burned by dragon fire uh, without fear for this just 
is just an aerial show for the Pentos people. And uh, atop Caraxes, they go flying through the, th- the flames and he comes out unscathed on the other end. So this conjures images in my mind of Daenerys walking through the flames at Vais Dothrak after she sets fire to the, the building and burns all of the calls that have, were gathered there. And so you got to wonder after seeing this, is Damon, does he have some sort of fireproof type of type of thing, uh, just as Veneris, as Veneris, just as Daenerys did? I think uh, George R. R. Martin had claimed or testified before that Daenerys surviving that fire was a miracle, but we had seen evidence of her being able to tolerate extreme heat, picking up dragon eggs that were burning other people's fingers, being in baths that have, with a very hot water that didn't seem to bother her at all. You know, fire can't kill a dragon, as she said, after her brother Viserys was given his golden crown and <laughs> called Drogo, dumped the molten gold over his head. So I'm not convinced that it really was a miracle. Daenerys seems to to have been confident against hot temperatures from from bef- you know from early on in her childhood, and so I'm wondering if other Targaryens exhibit similar traits. Is Daemon fireproof? Can he walk through flames? Can he survive dragon fire? Interesting to mull over in your mind. What do you think? Write into the show and let us know. Ravens at gameofmicrophones.com. Go to our Facebook page and let us know if you think Damon is fireproof like Daenerys. And wow, these dragons are just so cool. Caraxes does his squealing shriek as he comes flying through the flames <laughs> up into the air and diving down towards the, the Pentashi people. And we, we follow Vagar downward. And you can see the age on Vagar, just the wrinkles in its, in its skin. I'm not, I, dragons are kind of are asexual, sort of. So uh, I'm not I keep saying him, but may not necessarily be a him or a her. They're, they're gender non-binary, we'll say. And so uh, the, the Patashi people are just watching in awe as Vagar goes whoo, soaring at low altitude over the battlements, casting wind over everybody, followed swiftly by Caraxes, who soars down past. And man, I just, I love these dragons so much. I'm so scared about what's going to happen within the future. I don't want to see dragons fighting each other or dragons being killed. Oh God. Seeing those two dragons in Game of Thrones, Rhaegal and Viserion both killed. Uh, that was like, that was, that was as bad as the watching Lady the Direwolf being killed. Or, you know, it's like, I almost like, it, it, it hurts more seeing the, the animals being killed than it even hurts seeing some of these people being killed because the people are despicable scoundrels in a lot of cases, whereas the animals are just, uh, they're innocent to a degree. And man, so rare, the dragons. It's, it sucks seeing the dragons be taken down. So <laughs> I, I'm hoping that we won't see any dragons die in the future, but I just know it's not going to be true. So I'm trying to brace myself emotionally for that for that point in time, starting now. Starting now. And so, wow, now we see we're at dinner here with Daemon and Lena and the magistrate of Pentos and uh, <laughs> third actress for Lena. And she's pregnant and they've she's already got two kids here. 
So Damon seems to have at least temporarily managed to overcome his his erectile dysfunction that has been caused had caused him such frustration in earlier episodes. Uh, so that's good to see. They're over here in Pentos, and uh, the magistrate starts to give a toast to Aegon the Conqueror. So as it turns out, during the Century of Blood, Aegon the Conqueror came riding to the aid of the Pentoshi people in at least and burned a fleet of enemy ships, turning the tide in their favor and changing history in Essos. And it turns out that the magistrate is buttering up Damon <laughs> here in the hopes that he will stay to do something similar as the Triarchy is forming an alliance with the Dornish. And Dorn at this point is not yet part of the Seven Kingdoms. So a potential alliance between the Dornish and territories in Essos could be dangerous and could spell havoc for the, the Seven Kingdoms and for the free cities. So the Triarchy... Is <laughs> still causing problems. First in the Stepstones with a crab feeder, and now by forming an alliance with the Martells and Dorn. And as the magistrate says here, they may turn their sights north, which could put the Seven Kingdoms in danger, could put Pentos in danger. And in order to woo <laughs> Damon and Lena to help protect them in Pentos, he's offering to give them this gorgeous manse that they're spending time in and to give them yearly tribute to be paid by the locals in exchange for helping them to combat the triarchy. And in her pregnant state, Lena is pretty much over-traveling at this point, and it seems like she just wants to get home to Driftmark to give birth to her child there and to be home so she can just relax and this is the first moment where we start to see start to see that there's some strain in this relationship as well. She politely declines telling the magister that they're travelers and they've already overextended their welcome. But Damon hushes her. Sorry, I keep calling him the magister, but he's Prince Regio Haratus. <laughs> Regio, pretty cool name. So Damon kind of hushes Lena here and replies to Prince Reggio that it's a most generous offer and one that they will certainly entertain. And we get a little bit of ominous music. And in a symbolic moment, Lena lets go of Damon's hand and retracts her hand back to herself, uh, you know, clearly indicating that she is not happy with Damon's response to Prince Reggio here. So it cuts to later on in the evening as Damon is hanging out with his daughter and teaching her Valyrian, High Valyrian, which is pretty cool, passing on the language of their ancient homeland to their children. And Lena comes to him and explains to him her reasoning of why she does not think that they should stay in Pentos. And he explains that, you know, they have a great life there. There's no none of the political scheming and chaos that they would have be having to deal with in Westeros. Uh, she's, Lena says that they're using them, but he says it's refreshing, isn't it? A simple transaction. We have gold, they have dragons. No, None of the, like, the lying and scheming and manipulating that they would be having to go through in, in King's Landing, because <laughs> nothing is as it seems over there. 
but uh, she's not happy with it. She says that we are more than this, Damon. We're not minstrels or mummers who play at the pleasure of an alien prince like they just had been with their aerial show with the dragons, putting on a show for, <laughs> for the, the princes of the Pentos. We are the blood of old Valyria. We don't belong here. And he's like, Valyria's gone. We don't belong anywhere. But here, we have a good life. We don't have to put up with any of the craziness from Westeros. We're not, we're guests, so we don't have any responsibilities. This is the best. But she's not having it. She wants her child to be born where she was born, on Driftmark, in her, in her Lord Father's castle, and to be raised in their homeland with their family, according to their birthright. And at her end, she wants a dragon rider's death, not that of some fat country lord. And whew, may come a little bit sooner than she had anticipated, unfortunately. But uh, <laughs> kind of a messed up moment where after this, Damon turns back to his book and then kind of like looks up at her like, what are you still doing here? And <laughs> she's like, ugh, and kind of storms out. <laughs> it's like he loves her, but at the same time, he demands obedience and respect and his privacy and you know definitely does not seem like an equal relationship let's put it like that so then we have our training scene in the yard as the young boys are learning and practicing their sword fighting and <laughs> king viserys he's so clueless as to about as to what's going on he's like this is the stuff lionel talking to his hand lads that learn together train together knock each other down, pick each other up. You know, they'll certainly form a life, a lifelong bond. Wouldn't you agree? And he's got sort of this like fantasy version of reality kind of reminds me of Sansa and how she would imagine the world as being in the songs that she heard. And <laughs> she was in for a rude awakening when she learned that the songs are bullshit <laughs> and, and that real life is much messier and dirtier then the, the tales of the bards and the eloquently written rhymes. And uh, Viserys probably won't live to see it, but, you know, this is not going to end up the way that he thinks it is either. As I mentioned before, the, the children are being taught to view each other as enemies and dangers to each other. And Sir Kristen Cole here is not doing anything to help bring them closer together as he pits them against one, one another. He seems to be giving the bulk of his training, focusing mostly on the children of Queen Alicent, which draws the ire of Sir Harwin Strong, Harwin Breakbones, the commander of the Gold Cloaks, who happens to be watching as well. And there's a funny moment here as Aegon is caught ogling <laughs> some ladies as they go by, oh, smiling and kind of looking over at them and distracted from his practice. And Sir Kristen has to <laughs> snap him back into it. So Aegon claims victory over his straw man training dummy. And Sir Kristen Cole decides to give him some more challenging <laughs> practice by challenging Aegon and his brother Amond, both working together to see if they can strike him. And he proceeds to deftly, adroitly deflect all of their blows with his wooden sword and <laughs> use it to slap them with the, the flat side of the blade humiliatingly as he, <laughs> as he easily rolls away their, their attacks. 
And Harwin notices that he's excluding the younger boys, the sons of him, which nobody really knows yet, although everybody suspects, uh, in favor of giving his attention to Queen Alicent's children, who he seems clearly partial towards as her loyal servant. And so Harwin interjects himself and says that the younger boys may do well with some of his attention as well. So he's like, you're questioning my methods. And he's like, no, I just want you to apply your methods to all of your pupils, right? So this is when Sir Kristen kind of goes overboard, in my opinion. And he, he roughly grabs Jaceris by his chest plate and yanks him over, telling him that he'll be sparring with Aegon. And even King Viserys is kind of watching from above, like, huh? Like, as, as Kristen Cole roughly handles Rhaenyra's eldest son here. And when Sir Harwin calls out, Kristen Cole here for making an un, unevenly matched fight between the two of them. He plays it off by saying, oh, you know, in a real, I know you haven't seen real combat, sir, but when steel is drawn, you cannot expect a fair match. And so this scene, as he pits the eldest sons against one another, seems to symbolize the way that these children are going to be turned against each other as they're driven apart by paranoia and as threats to one another over the succession rights. And Sir Kristen Cole is really like encouraging Aegon to beat on the younger boy here mercilessly. And unfortunately, this triggers Sir Harwin Breakbones, who, as Kristen Cole points out, seems too invested in, the, in these younger boys for some reason. He says, well, like, I would expect this from, you know, somebody in regards to a cousin or a nephew and <laughs> or a son and he knowingly says that to to Harwin <laughs> this triggers Harwin who turns around and starts pummeling Sir Kristen gets down on top of him in a full mount and is just left right left right dropping blows on him just like Kristen had done to Joffrey Sir Joffrey Lonmouth in the previous episode murdering him at the wedding and this causes a big scene Gets everybody atten everybody's attention in the immediate area. Magneto helmets are showing up and dragging Sir Harwin off of Sir Kristen. And oh, this is just a big mess. This causes a big mess. Sir Kristen Cole knows that he's the father and baited him into attacking him by taunting him and putting his sons at, in danger in front of him just in order to get him to attack him, to, to reveal his true position. And Harwin falls for the bait, attacks him, and it's clear that he seems very, very connected and very interested in the princeling's training, <laughs> as Sir Kristen Cole put it. So four Kingsguard white cloaks are holding Sir Harwin back as he says, say it again, say it again. And Kristen Cole is just kind of like lying there on his back, all bloodied up, laughing to himself. <laughs> Thought as much smug with how he's managed to reveal the truth in front of everybody. <laughs> and this is going to have dire consequences. So it's shortly after this, it cuts to Rhaenyra's chambers, and a handmaiden comes in to inform her that there's been an incident in the training yard. And so she sneaks out through the secret passageway and creeps up towards Harwin Strong's chamber, where she lurks in the passage and listens to the interaction that's occurring between Harwin Harwin Breakbones and his father, Lionel Strong, the hand. And it is not pretty. And Lionel Strong is talking about how it films, fills him with shame, this situation. 
And Harwin's like, what? Because I laid my hands on that insufferable coal, the son of a steward? And Lionel's like, yes, but that's not the biggest problem here. You have laid us open to accusations of an uglier treachery. The fact that you've been fathering bastards with the princess. This is, this is bad. Harwin plays dumb. And what treachery is that? He's like, don't play the fool with me, boy. Your intimacy with the princess Rhaenyra is an offense that would mean exile and death for you, for her, for the children. And Rhaenyra's kind of listening in the passage like, oh, God. Harwin again tries to lie. It's it's rumor only, spun by the princess's rivals. And uh, Lionel's like, dude, people are not stupid. People have eyes, boy. We see what those kids look like, and they are not Valerians. Yet the king will not accept what his eyes see. This flimsy shield of the king's unwillingness to believe the truth is the only thing standing between you and the headsman. The willful blindness of a father towards his child. Just as Alicent wouldn't acknowledge Aegon's wrongdoing in the situation earlier where he had instigated the delivering of the pink dread pig to Amond, Viserys is unwilling to see that his own child, Rhaenyra, is behaving equally as badly, really badly. And um, so Harwin's like, I wish my father had similar blindness. He's like, are you kidding me? Like, have I not for all these years that we've been, I've been pretending that this is not happening, but I know the truth. I see the way you're interacting with those kids in the training field, training yard. I see how much they look like you look like us. You know, this is, this is insane. And, and today you publicly assaulted a knight of the King's guard in, in the defense of your, and he, he stops before he says children of your sons, but it, it's plain what he's talking about. And Harwin's like, you have your honor and I have mine. And, and <laughs> you can tell by, by picking a fight with Kristen Cole, he is sort of unwittingly admitted the truth of the situation by letting it get personal and acting out in defense of his children. This is going to draw eyes. It's going to draw speculation. And it's going to be very problematic. So then it cuts to the next scene as Rhaenyra is arriving back into her chambers through the secret doorway, right in the sight of a handmaiden who's waiting for her uh, with some warm compresses to soothe her swollen breasts, which are sore. And as she plops down on the sofa here, drunken singing is growing louder <laughs> in the background as her <laughs> drunken husband, Sir Lenor, is arriving with his lover boy. And it's like, dudes, you guys are crazy. Sir Harwin is like hanging out with the kids in Rhaenyra's chamber. Lenor is running around with his drunken lover in plain sight of all the people of the castle. Like, they're just asking to get caught. With They're not being careful at all about any of this. So it's inevitable that that the, their glass house that they're living in is going to come crashing down all around them, it seems. And so he comes in with Carl, his, his drunken boyfriend, and he's explaining, oh, the, you know, are you sore? That when the breasts fill with milk, they get sore. And she's like, uh, would you shut up, Lenor? Jesus, you're stupid. Carl, would you mind if I spoke privately with my husband? <laughs> and she, she gives Carl the boot and, and sends him a, sends him a running. 
and it's time to have a serious chat with Sir Lenor. And so Lenor explains that war is breaking out again in the Stepstones as the Triarchy allies with Dorne, and that his boy Carl has been over there fighting, and he longs for battle again. He was a warrior growing up. He he rode sea smoke during the last fighting at the at the Stepstones with the crab feeder and was laying waste to the to the pirates over there. And he Rhaenyra, this whole this whole episode has been very sullen and salty, very different from from where we saw her uh, in terms of her disposition in the first half of the season, where she was bubbly and outgoing and smiling and happy, and then at the end at the wedding, <laughs> she was basically crying during their vows and was very upset. And it seems like now she's in a very different place than she was ten years ago. You know, everything was fun and games when she started with her cheating and and sleeping around and everything. But now her actions are coming back to roost and she's having to deal with the consequences of everything that she's done in real time as the walls are closing in around her. And uh, so she's been sullen and and (laughs) dour for the most part this episode. But we actually get a smile from her here as... (laughs) as Lenor describes a chieftain in the triarchy who dyes his beard purple and wears women's frocks, <laughs> which is funny. Kind of reminds me of, I don't know if it's strong Belwas or the champion of Marine, someone in the books that <laughs> maybe it's uh Illyrio Mopatis. I don't know. Somebody, somebody has, Oh no, I think it's Dario Naharis has a big purple beard. Very different portrayal of Dario in the TV show with <laughs> the two actors, Euro Trash Dario that played him as he's as he was referred to by Bald Move Podcast. And uh the second guy with the beard and everything, the actor from Orphan Black. So this Essos chieftain with a big purple beard <laughs> made me think of of imagery that we get in the books, which is much more colorful and and fantastical than a lot of the stuff we get in the TV shows. So that was kind of funny. And so Sir Lenor's head is in the clouds as he's oh, talking about this giant bag of sapphires that <laughs> that Carl showed him. And like, oh, how the battle would be so great to it would be finally good to finally get back on his dragon and see some action. And she brings his dreams crashing down. And she tells him, <laughs> are you mad? Do you know what ha- what's happened? Well, you've been guzzling all the ale in Flea Bottom and God's know what besides. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, man. <laughs> Brutal line. And uh, she tells him, dark rumors are, are hunting us, Lenor. They nip at our heels. Questions about our son's parentage. Vile, disgusting insinuations. <laughs> the same kind of uh, rhetoric that she gave to Alicent when she con- confronted her about Damon. Vile accusations. <laughs> Showing that she hasn't changed. And so she says, vile, disgusting insinuations. And Lenor's like, insinuations, are they? And she's like, they're our sons, yours and mine. And, you know, we got to live the lie, bro. Like, you can't be sitting here saying stuff like that. This is insane. These walls have eyes, dude. And she's like, and you got to snap into it. Their true father, you, (laughs) as we're going with the story, will not abandon them now to go carousing through the narrow sea, waggling his sword (laughs) and winking at his sailors. Oh, man, she's really (laughs) giving him the business (laughs) regarding his gayness. 
pretty crazy. And he's like, I am a knight. I am a, I'm a warrior. And I've played my part here faithfully for 10 years. I'm owed some, you are owed nothing, she snaps. For 10 years, you've indulged yourself at court, bought the finest horses, drunk the rarest wines, fucked the lustiest boys. This was our agreement. I have not begrudged you. And he's like, oh, shit. Yeah, she's pretty right. I have been, you know, living the merry life. <laughs> and she's like, you do not desert your post when the storm lashes. And being from a, an ocean-faring family, <laughs> he's like, aha, a wise sailor flees the storm as it gathers. <laughs> and she's like, <laughs> like fuming. She's like, well, then I command you. I command you to hold your post and to stay here and not to go off to the stepstones. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you're commanding me. <laughs> and he just deflates. As your princess and heir to the throne, you are commanded to remain in King's Landing and by my side. <laughs> she lays down the law. So next we find ourselves back in Pentos as the lovely Lady Reyna Targaryen, daughter of Daemon and Lena Valerian, is humming to herself, placing her dragon egg over the fire in a cute little scene. And Lena comes in and says to her, it's been eight years, sweetling. And I, <laughs> I love the word sweetling, a great little term of endearment for her daughter. And it's so sad. Because she's telling her daughter, it's, you know, it's been eight years and she's still trying to hatch her dragon egg so she can be like Bela, her sister, and Daemon and her mother. And she's, she's so innocent and sitting there and trying to do this. And her mother's explaining to her, you know, half of them never hatch. And uh, she's like, will they let me stay? Talking about Prince Reggio and the Pentoshi. And Lena's like, I don't understand. She says, he wants you and father and Bela because you have dragons. And, and she feels left out and thinks that Damon ignores her because she's not a, she doesn't have a dragon yet. And it, as we saw, he was spending more time with Bela, it seemed, earlier, uh, teaching her High Valyrian, although we don't know what Reyna was doing. And Lena is explaining to Rayla, all these names, oh my God, <laughs> that... You know, there's more than one way to bind yourself to a dragon, as she knows from experience, because she was dragonless until 15. So when we saw her in the garden with Viserys, I think she was 12, they said. So it was only three years after that where she found Vagar, the largest dragon in the world, and convinced Vagar to submit to her as, his, as its master. Imagine that 15-year-old Lena Valerian. That needs to be like its own movie, just like a, a one-off of Lena Valerian <laughs> finding and, and winning the heart of Vagar. And so, so she's explaining to Rayla here that, you know, some dragons are born to their masters, like Bela's dragon was born to her, but, but you have a harder road. If you wish to be a dragon rider, you have to claim that right, just as she did when she claimed Vagar as her own. And your father would tell you to do the same. So this is when she mentions Damon ignoring her, which is sad. And there's solemn music playing, further accentuating the sadness. <laughs> it's crazy if you watch something without music, how much less emotional it feels. But when you add in music, it tugs at the heartstrings and really <laughs> ramps up the emotional effect of any given scene and <laughs> Lena sticks up for Damon here and tells 
Rayla, he's he's doing his best. <laughs> oh, and I forgot to mention that Lena Valerian is is very pregnant again for child number three. So Damon's really, you know, now that he's got his <laughs> his his gear functioning, he's really taking advantage of it, it seems. <laughs> Speaking of gear functioning, I also forgot to mention earlier when <laughs> Prince Egon was in the window <laughs> threatening King's Landing with his own little pink dread <laughs> that it was just like Homelander in the uh, a scene of The Boys, an Amazon Prime show, which I highly recommend. It's like twisted Marvel superheroes, like if, like if they were all horrible people. <laughs> it's, it's a great show. You got to check it out. So speaking of how only half the eggs ever hatch, has it always been that way or is that just a trend since the Targs and Valerians have arrived in King's Landing and in Westeros? Could it be that the Maesters are doing something to poison the dragon eggs, trying to prevent more dragons from hatching? Your guess is as good as mine. Let us know what you think. So then it cuts to Daemon brooding atop the battlements in the night with a glass of wine and some bread. And he smiles upon seeing Lena arrive to hang with him. And she brings word that her brother Lenor has written, informing her that Rhaenyra has given birth to a third son. <laughs> and <laughs> Daemon has a great snarky line here. Does your brother mention if this one also bears a marked but entirely coincidental resemblance to the commander of the city watch <laughs> a nice way of saying is this one a bastard too <laughs> she says he seems to have left that detail out so they both know the situation here neither of them seems to really care she laments about how she misses her brother and she says that she believes Damon misses his brother too. And like we talked about earlier when he stole the dragon egg and was talking about being married and took over Dragonstone, these are all like pleas for attention from his brother Viserys. He seems like that he just, he craves attention from Viserys. So it probably, it probably is, uh, he probably does miss him, you know? But <laughs> in typical Damon fashion, he deflects, I miss Westerosi's strong wine, he says. It could be depended on <laughs> this amber shit they drink here. I can't even get a few hours of peaceful oblivion with this amber shit. And he claims that he never longs for home, but she tells him she doesn't believe him. And uh, brings up how he lauds the virtues of Pentos. But he doesn't really have any interest in it. He never goes downtown or hangs out or check, checks out the local stuff. All he does is sit in the library reading accounts of the dead dragon lords whose legacy he claims has no hold on him. But we know that's not true. It seems like uh, he's, he's given up on his dreams of, of forging a legacy of his own in Westeros as Rhaenyra has married el someone else and he's been booted from the line of succession at this point like there's no chance now that Viserys has a trueborn heir and there's Rhaenyra it's like he's nowhere near the line of succession at this point and so I think that he sees an opportunity potentially from being offered the a position here in in Pentos to forge a different destiny and a different legacy in his own name sort of as Aegon the Conqueror did mirroring the conqueror as he brings dragon fire to Essos and enforces the triarchy under his command once and for all to bend to his will. 
So uh, she mentions that he's been hanging in the library, obsessing over his dead ancestors and (laughs) how he's not sleeping. And he's like, I didn't know I was being so minutely observed. And she's like, you know, like, well, you don't sleep. And he's like, well, how can I with that with you haunting my every move? And (laughs) there is definitely tension here between these two. Unfortunately, um, who knows if Damon's heart was ever really in it to begin with. Although he does seem to see her affectionately in some manner, like he smiled when she showed up and he caresses her pregnant belly and all of this. But uh, she's disappointed by him seeing her as haunting his every move. And she's like, life has disappointed you, I know, but perhaps I'm not the wife you would have wished for because <laughs> she knows that he wanted Rhaenyra. Everybody knows, especially uh, probably after that near kiss during the wedding, which is only interrupted by <laughs> by um, Sir Kristen Cole pummeling Joffrey to death. Who knows what would have happened if that hadn't interrupted that intimate moment? Would they have kissed in front of everybody and then Dam- would have forced Damon's hand to s- slice through everyone and steal her away to Dragonstone? <laughs> it's possible. But uh, Lena is lamenting that she knows that he's not the way, the wife that Damon would have wished for. And he's, he's like, come on, like Lena. And she's, she's tells him it doesn't pain her that she's already made peace, but she's telling him like, but you're more than this, you know, like don't relegate yourself to the outskirts and exile to drown yourself in wine. Like Tyrion lamenting the life that you could have had in Westeros. You're more than this. The man I married, she says, was more than this. And he's like, ah, you know, he's left deep in thought. So next we find ourselves back in another small council meeting. And Rhaenyra is sitting back in the chair and banging her head against it. As she seemed bored, seems bored to death with the minutia of hearing about a contentious argument between the Brackens and the Blackwoods, the (laughs) classic rivalry of the Riverlands, as uh, we are hearing that the Blackwoods claim the Brackens moved their boundary stones in the dead of the night (laughs) and set their horses to graze in in the Blackwoods field, which sounds about right, considering the interactions we've seen between the Blackwoods and the Brackens already in this series. When Rhaenyra was in Storm's End during her marriage tour looking for a suitor, and the Brackens were antagonizing the Blackwoods, to say the least, <laughs> which only ended, ended when the young Blackwood boy disemboweled the Bracken, <laughs> which is an epic scene. And Allison is like, well, why hasn't Lord Grover Tully handled this? This is a matter for them. And it's only when Allison doesn't, Allison doesn't want to deal with it that Rhaenyra suddenly seems interested as, as if she just has to do the exact opposite and go against Allison in, in everything. <laughs> And she's like, well, the Brackens and the Blackwoods will use any excuse to draw blood, draw each other's blood. Uh, So this seems like a dispute that bears looking into before it gets out of hand. And Allison's like, of course, she just has to play the serial contrarian with everything I say. And we're seeing uh, the way that a lot of these characters have aged. (laughs) Viserys is looking like Gollum. Beesbury is way older and seems to mentally be slipping a little bit as the conversation moves to the Stepstones and he's still talking about the Bracken Blackwood scenario. And it seems like Maester Melos has died as Maester Orwile is now in the small council meeting 
and has to explain to Beesbury that they've changed subjects. <laughs> it's a little bit jarring with some of the characters being played by different actors and others being the same. But it's like certain actors that have stayed the same serve as a bridge between the changing of the other actors. So in that way, it kind of makes sense so that not everything is different and everything is uh, jarring. Uh, <laughs> and King Viserys has just had, he's, he's so over the stepstones. He's like, Jesus, like when, like, are we ever going to get to stop dealing with this insane situation at the stepstones? It's like, no matter what we do, it just keeps... Things keep happening down there. And he's like, we can't deal with the Dornish directly because like their their words worth nothing. To trust trust a Martell is to be disappointed. <laughs> and so someone's like, Well, where is Prince Damon? He was styled himself as king when he won the battle there. And Allison's like, that was a decade ago, and now he he's left the region completely undefended. And Rhaenyra, you know, has to argue with her again. <laughs> we left it undefended. There should have been fortifications built, watchtowers, a fleet of ships, a garrison of soldiers. But Alicent points out, we can't afford it. Our coffers are, you know, mighty, but they're not infinite. And we have to consider the cost to our subjects. And she's like, yeah, I agree. The cost of war is greater than the monetary cost of fortifying the area. And she's got a good point here. It would have made sense to put watchtowers up and sort of fortify the area to protect trade between Essos and Westeros. So I think this was a strategic mistake by the by the the kingdoms, and it's coming back to bite him in the butt. And Viserys just looks weary. He's rubbing his forehead with his handkerchief, and he's just like, oh, he looks so tired of hearing Alicent and Rhaenyra just bickering amongst each other. And there seems to be a general shift in power dynamic here at the small council meetings. Viserys is kind of just sitting back and Alicent is now leading the conversation in many ways and seems to be in a position of authority over the king in a lot of circumstances, as we see shortly. But there's a funny line <laughs> where uh, Rhaenyra is like, you know, we, we made a mistake We've been lax in the stepstones, handling the pirates and the triarchy, and 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 the old monster now lifts its head, and it shows Viserys as she says that, and and he kind of lifts his head up <laughs> to look in their direction, and it's kind of funny. They're like, sort of calling him the old monster <laughs> by focusing the shot on him as she says this, and having him lift his head. <laughs> and Alicent is just sick of Rhaenyra, and she's like, oh, let let us be finished. And Viserys sighs and just goes along with it. <sighs> yes. And <laughs> before they can get very far, Rhaenyra speaks up and tells him to wait. So it seems that right about now, Rhaenyra knows that she's pretty screwed and that the walls are closing in. And so in, in a desperate Hail Mary, she tries to <laughs> reach out a rotten olive branch to Queen Alicent. And she... You can, she's very nervous. You could tell that she's, she's feeling cornered here as she desperately offers to join their houses. She feels the strife between their families and apologizes for any offense she may have given, but it says that they're one house. After saying between our families, plural, she says we are one house. So, okay, you're saying that, but you're also contradicting it by saying strife between our families. 
So what do you really mean? <laughs> and she offers to marry their son, her son Jaharis to their daughter Helena to ally themselves once and for all and to let them rule together. And <laughs> the whole time as she's making this offer, Viserys is like smiling, like, oh, like a most judicious proposition, he says. And Alicent is just like, oh, shaking her head. And she she leans her head forward and shakes it like, oh, this is ridiculous. And seeing her very negative reaction, <laughs> Rhaenyra panics. And uh, uh, additionally, if Cyrax brings forth another clutch of eggs, your son Aemond will have his choice of them, uh, uh, a symbol of our goodwill. <laughs> and I see what's going on now. It seems as if Aemond never got a dragon's egg, which means that Cyrax had had probably had a clutch of eggs previously, and the reason why their new why Rhaenyra's new baby has an egg and Aemond didn't have an egg is because she probably refused to give Alicent's child one of the eggs of Cyrax's last clutch. So Alicent is like, this is ridiculous. Ifs and maybes, they make for great promises, right? <laughs> and she's just like <sighs> and points out, Rhaenyra, your uh, your your undignifiedness is showing. And Rhaenyra realizes that her breasts are leaking milk through her dress in a very embarrassing way, sort of mirroring how undignified her proposal is here. And she's like, oh, seven hells, and sits down. And King Viserys is completely <laughs> in, his, in La La Land. <laughs> My dear, a dragon's egg is a handsome gift. <laughs> and Alicent is not having it. And so Alicent kind of diplomatically blows it off by saying, the king and I thank you for your offer and we will consider it duly. You must rest now, husband. And <laughs> Viserys kind of like looks back and forth between the two of them, <sighs> kind of disappointed that she didn't just immediately accept the offer. And because he, he's sick of their bickering, he likes seeing this olive branch. And she sort of tells the king it's bedtime, similar to Tywin telling Joffrey, sending him to bed without his dinner. You must rest now, husband. And he's like, ah, and sort of looks like he might resist for a second, but then he's just like, yes, yes, and gives in and gets up to leave. And it's crazy to me that Rhaenyra thought that there was ever a chance that Alicent would accept this offer. Alicent this whole time has been angry that Rhaenyra has been abusing her station and neglecting her responsibilities and she's had all these opportunities and she's squandering them by making bad decisions going to the whorehouse with Damon cheating with Sir Kristen Cole and sullying herself when they're seeking a suitor for marriage for her which could just ruin the situation Rhaenyra is making terrible decisions driven by selfish desires and lust and forgetting about her responsibilities entirely whereas Alicent has always played by the rules she's done what she had to do for her family, courting King Viserys, having sex with a rotten, literally rotting dude, doing all of her, all of these things that she's had to do, duty over love, whereas Rhaenyra is just reneging her duty for love. And it just, it's, it makes Alicent sick. And so the idea that she would accept an offer to marry her true born daughter to a bastard is just absurd and flies in the face of everything she stands for. And since she's been trying to get Rhaenyra on the straight and narrow this whole time, it would be sort of legitimizing all of Rhaenyra's bad decisions. 
and embracing them, sullying her own legacy by knowingly giving her trueborn daughter to a bastard so she wouldn't even be marrying a, a trueborn Valerian. There's just no chance that this offer ever would have been accepted by Alicent, who's all about the truth and honesty and decency, as she says. And Rhaenyra has forsaken all of that for lust and desire. And she's putting the kingdoms, the kingdom on a knife's edge here by offering up bastards to the throne. Something like that could rip the whole kingdom apart as Viserys himself alluded to earlier on when he said that the consequences of this type of accusation that you're making are, would be most dire. Rhaenyra had the whole world at her fingertips, and she's just blown up the whole situation by going around and sleeping around and making a big mess of everything. You have, like I said before, like if you want to be the heir, you have one job. Which is aside from ruling the kingdom, but which is to propagate the the dynasty with a trueborn, and she couldn't even just wait to get that done. It's it's highly frustrating, and uh, it's driving Alicent mad. And asking Alicent to marry her daughter Helena, even though she's a weirdo, as <laughs> as Alicent seems to put it, <laughs> to a bastard is just it's not happening. Allison is not going to lower herself to Rhaenyra's level. And uh, there, it was <laughs> it was an olive branch with a rotting olive. Like, you know, it was never even a, a legitimate olive branch. It was a bad, rotten olive branch. And it was a desperate Hail Mary because Rhaenyra knows she screwed up. She knows she's busted. And look at her standing there, stuttering over the words, begging. You know, like, we, we used to be friends, like, just just forget about my indiscretions, forget that I'm going to seat a bastard on the throne in my stead when I'm gone. Like, And Allison's just like, no, that's ridiculous. It's not happening ever. And so she's going to deny it. And Rhaenyra <laughs> is going to have to... Uh, I know a lot of people out there are Team Rhaenyra, but Rhaenyra made her own bed. All of this could have been easily avoided if she had just played by the rules or at least been sneaky enough not to get caught, then Alicent would never have, wouldn't even have this problem with her. But her infidelity, her deception, her treacherousness has just driven this situation to a boiling point. And the final straw is her trying to thrust a bastard upon the trueborn daughter of. Alicent and Alicent is just like no way in seven hells like that is not happening not happening and you can see it in Rhaenyra's eyes as the as Alicent goes to leave with the king she's sitting there and her eyes are flicking back and forth and she knows that she screwed up and she knows that the walls are closing in and that her, her chickens are coming home to roost to our modern perspectives the idea of a bastard isn't really a big deal at all. But we have to remember that in Westeros, in this time period, the idea of being a bastard carries a great stigma with it. And they say that bastards have evil blood. So, <laughs> the idea that the queen, the prim and proper queen, would knowingly marry a true-born daughter and potential heir to the throne to a, a bastard is like, no, 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 no. Rhaenyra is way over her head here. 
And Alicent puts it, <laughs> puts it really eloquently here when she says, how sweetly the fox speaks when it's cornered by the hounds, which is true. Rhaenyra <laughs> doesn't give a shit about Alicent, wouldn't give her kid a dragon's egg, you know, uh, et cetera. And Viserys is sticking up for her. She's sincere. And Alicent's like, she's desperate, which is true. That She just reeks of desperation more than she reeked of dragons in <laughs> that episode a few episodes back. And uh, she, she says she feels the earth washing away beneath her feet. And now she expects us to ignore her transgressions and for me to marry my only daughter to one of her. She goes, cuts herself short from saying bastards because there's lots of people around. But she says, plain featured sons. <laughs> and Jaehaerys is just so fixated on peace that <laughs> he's, he's willing to, to forego truth and his legacy just for peace and willing to, you know, to let the kingdom fall into the hands of a non-true born Targaryen or Valerian, a strong bastard, just in the hopes that peace will remain. But you can't go along with that. You can't allow deception to fester and then just accept lies and accept treachery without punishment or without further in regard and just live as, as normal as as if nothing has happened. Otherwise that type of behavior will continue. And so they're caught in like kind of a difficult position here. And it reminds me of the phrase justice be done. May the heavens fall. And justice in this case would be exposing that there are bastards in the line of succession, exposing Rhaenyra for her transgressions that she's committed. And uh, even if the heavens fall, and that's basically what <laughs> we're going to see happen, I think, because Alicent, she wants truth and she wants decency to prevail, even if it costs peace for the kingdom. So justice be done, may the heavens fall. That's Alicent's view. And uh, it's understandable. So Viserys is trying to get her to go along with it as he's walking her back to her chambers, it seems, because this seems, this is, looks like the stairway that they're walking up, uh, that Rhaenyra and Lenor were walking up earlier. And he's, and he's telling her, the proposal's a good one, my queen. We're a family. Let us put aside these childish quarrels. Join hands and be stronger for it. And she tells him, you may do as you wish, husband, when I am cold in my grave. And good for her for standing up for her, her true-born daughters and standing up for her legacy and not being willing to squander her family's honor to live a lie and to propagate future generations of false Targaryens. You know, sometimes you just have to stand on your principles and that's what, what she's doing here. She storms off to her chambers, leaving Viserys standing on the stairs alone. Power move. Man, she, uh, she is, she's in control of the situation here. She has much more leverage in the power dynamic than she did in the first half of the season. That is very clear as Viserys is stepping back, it seems, and letting her handle a lot of stuff. So they arrive back in the chambers. Alicent storms in first, followed shortly thereafter by Viserys. He's, he's really not doing well. He's ailing in his older age. He's coughing and grunting a lot. And she's got to fluff the pillows for him and gives him a blanket as he sits down. And it's at this point where 
Lord Lionel Strong comes to meet with the king. And wow, this scene is intense. Lord Lionel has come to resign as <laughs> to resign his position as hand of the king. The, after the episode in the yard with Harwin disgracing himself, he says every fishwife in King's Landing will soon be telling the tale. And the king is just is you can't believe what he's hearing. He says, you know, the young Harwin's outburst is unfortunate, it's true, but He's been expelled by the city watch. That seems punishment enough. <laughs> and Lord Lionel is just beside himself. Forgive me, your grace. It is not. <laughs> and the king is like, are you kidding me? You've served me faithfully for 10 years as hand. Many before that. Your advice has been sage, unmarked by self-interest, which stands in contrast to all the others. <laughs> and Lionel's like, dude, you're like, you're... I appreciate the the kind words, but there is a shadow over my house and it grows and grows ever darker by the day. I can no longer serve you with integrity. And Viserys just can't see the forest through the trees. He just refuses to acknowledge any wrongdoing by his by his daughter. He just can't do it. He can't see it. He knows the truth. You know this to be true. But he just can't accept it. He can't come to grips with it. And so he says, what, what is this shadow? Name it if it casts such a gloom. And Alicent's like, yeah, say it. Please say it. Say it. Somebody's got to say it. Say it out loud. Because she knows. Kristen Cole knows. Everybody knows. But nobody's saying it. It's like the king has, the, the, the emperor has no clothes type thing. Where everybody's just, you know, going along with it and telling the emperor who's standing there naked, like how beautiful his new outfit is. Nobody is willing to break the spell and speak the truth, <laughs> except Alicent, who, when she tries, gets shut down. And so she's like, please, please say it. Spill the beans. Like, this needs to come out. This is, this is a major issue. And <laughs> Lionel can't do it. He can't, he can't say it. He can't, if the king doesn't know and, and won't say it, he's not going to throw his own son under the bus. This is like the one selfish thing he's ever done as, as the hand. He refuses to, to throw his son under the bus and speak the words aloud of the treason. And uh, man, this is crazy. And so he's like, I cannot. And Viserys says, well, like, then I cannot accept your resignation. And Alicent tries to butt in and he's like, I said no. And shuts her down forcefully. And uh, Lionel is just like, <sighs> like, fine, if you insist, I'll keep doing it. But like, I can't, like you said, he can't serve him with integrity anymore. His, his position is compromised. He has a conflict of interest because those are his grandchildren, you know? So <laughs> he's, he's in so far over his head and he can't get out. He can't get out. And so he's asking instead if he can at least then take Harwin and escort him out of King's Landing, get him the hell out of there and back to Heron Hall. He's the, he's his heir and will be Lord over Heron's castle one day. So it's time he assumed his duties since he's been expelled from the city watch. And so Viserys grants him leave to do it. And Alicent is just like, what the hell? Like, why won't you just see, she's not saying this, but it's, you know, in her attitude, she's very mad at, at Viserys now. 
who sits down and he's like, aren't you going to help me? And whereas she had been helping him beforehand, now she's just like disgusted with his inability or unwillingness to accept reality and uh, his, his desperate clinging to his fantasy version of the truth <laughs> where the silver, silver stallion <laughs> breeds chestnut brown foals. And she storms out, leaving him there. And he's just like, oh, I just can't get a win. (laughs) All he wants is peace and love between, he he loves Allison, he loves Rhaenyra. He just wants everybody to love each other. But Allison's a stickler for the rules and for the truth. And Rhaenyra is (laughs) treacherous and (laughs) treasonous and deceptive. And, you know, it's just a... Nobody's willing to give an inch. Rhaenyra was willing to give an inch because she's in the wrong. And so she was willing to <laughs> to, to plead and beg for Allison's, Allison's forgiveness, but to no avail. And uh, the king is just left there wishing <laughs> that he could have done something better to make peace for his, his family, who he loves and wants them all to be happy. And Alicent is just growing more and more... Um, frustrated by this whole situation she had said earlier to Kristen cole like i feel like i'm the only one who's sees the truth here and is is willing to admit it and talk about it (laughs) reminded me of uh, mugatu from zoolander shut up enough already ballstein blue steel ferrari latigra they're the same face doesn't anyone notice this i feel like i'm taking crazy pills <laughs> I feel like I'm on crazy pills here <laughs> because Derek Zoolander is doing all these poses that he claims are different facial expressions. Blue Steel, Ferrari, and they're all the same face. And Mugatu's the only one. Everybody's like, "Oh my god, the new face, Blue Steel! It's amazing! It's 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 incredible!" And Mugatu's like, "It's the same face." <laughs> and so, <laughs> Alicent is the only one here who sees the truth and is is bothered by it. And uh, is willing to stand up for truth, basically. And so she arrives back at, is this her chambers maybe now? But there's a guest waiting for her who has already started eating his meal. And it's (laughs) Laris Strong, the clubfoot. Oh, man. And this guy is creepy. And it's in this scene where Alicent unwittingly sets into motion a chain of events that, you know, once the bell is rung, it cannot be unrung. So now we learn that Laris has, in fact, been serving effectively as her spy master, keeping her informed of goings on about the castle and King's Landing. But tonight, she knows what's what's going on and he doesn't. So he asks about the meeting that she just left, and she informs him that his father attempted to resign his hand. So she says that he did fall short of divulging (laughs) Harwin's transgressions to Viserys, although Harwin basically admitted the truth of it himself with his outburst in the yard. And Laris has a great line here. Truth has many flavors, your grace. Do you expect the king to (laughs) to doom his daughter to exile or even... Death, he doesn't say it, but that's the punishment we heard of earlier for this crime. And uh, But I like that line, truth has many flavors. And that's kind of the uh, a theme of this show, as the, show ri- the showrunners have tried to make all of the characters sort of gray, so that some people 
will side with some characters and other people will, will side with certain characters. Everything is sort of a matter of perspective in this show, uh, which harkens back to the conversation between Sir Davos Seaworth and Melisandre, the Red Woman, as they're talking about good and evil and right and wrong and black and white. And they're talking about an onion and uh, she poses the question, if an onion has a spot of rot, you know, do you cut it out and, and, and eat the rest of the onion, which is still good? Or is it a rotten onion? And, you know, depending on who you are, you might cut out the rot and eat the rest that's still good, or you might throw the whole onion away. And certain people uh, can neither be judged as good nor bad neither black nor white, just various shades of gray. And that's a theme all throughout the books of A Song of Ice and Fire and George R. R. Martin's books, and as well throughout the TV shows. And they're going for that, especially with this series, as as they've mentioned, by making characters' motives understandable from a a variety of different perspectives, going for that gray feel to uh, (laughs) probably to, to, I guess, to try to pit us all against each other as we argue about the details of who's right and who's wrong in these circumstances. Because the situation, the dance of the dragons, depending on how you view the world and how you view reality, you may fall fall on the side of the greens, you may fall on the side of the blacks. Just as the kingdom split in the story, the viewers will be split with how they're interpreting the motivations and actions of the characters. And so it's all different shades of gray, and it'll be interesting to see where people land as the chips fall. So they're suddenly interrupted during their meal at this point by a handmaiden, Talia, who walks in, and Laris immediately shuts his mouth, showing us that he knows when and when not to speak. And the queen sends her out, Talia, not now, and the handmaiden quickly vacates, as they continue their conversation. And uh, I'm wondering, is this handmaiden sort of spying on the queen? She seems to be lurking around in various places. I don't know if this is the same one or not, who <laughs> who was lurking in the hallway a couple scenes before this, uh, or maybe just a minute or so before this. Allison kind of uh, did a double take noticing a, a handmaid lurking. Um, I wonder if this handmaiden is kind of spying on her. <laughs> so Talia exits. Laris starts speaking again, saying it's a willful blindness, the king, and that she'd surely suffer the same affliction if it came to it. And she immediately says, I would not. But we already know that's not true because earlier she wouldn't even consider the idea that Egon had instigated the incident with the pink dread pretending to give Amond a dragon. So she, we've already seen is afflicted by this same problem of willful blindness towards the sins of her own children, just as Viserys is. So it's at this point that Laris learns that his father has retained the position of Hand of the King, that his resignation was refused. And he's like, well, you know, my father is compromised. He can't give unbiased guidance to the king, considering that his grandchildren are <laughs> are <laughs> the bastards of the princess. And so Alicent is, you know, saying, oh, it's now that I most rue the absence of my own father. And she's lamenting, wishing that Sir Otto was still around to give her guidance and to side with her. It, it's interesting, too, because Laris is like, well, well, Otto wouldn't be able to give unbiased 
advice either. And she's like, but he'd be biased towards me, you know, <laughs> which is all she wants. Cause she's like the only person who's standing up for, <laughs> for truth here and honesty. And, and uh, even though it's, it would be a biased person, which, which is not good necessarily. Uh, <laughs> she's, she, she just wants an ally so badly that she, I guess would be willing to overlook his biases. And the scene ominously draws to a close with Alicent lamenting, in all of King's Landing, is there no one to take my side? And Larys leans in on his, on his hands and you can see the gears turning in his mind, the, the rats running on their little hamster wheels in his mind as he begins plotting. Oh man, this is crazy. So next it cuts to the black cells beneath the, the red keep where the prisoners are being held. Dirty and grubby in their cells and a footsteps approach and a cane plants itself before the cell and there's a logo of a insect of an insect on the handle of the cane the firefly and it's laris and as it turns out oh man laris is here to build an army of silent warriors <laughs> who <laughs> will be comprised of murderers, deviants, thieves being held in the black cells. And when they ask what he wants from them, he offers them a position of service if they're willing to give something in exchange. He says he's prepared to offer them mercy if they're prepared to pay a little price. And it turns out that he has, has their tongues sliced out of their mouths in exchange for their lives and serving him as their master. And oh man, this is crazy. It reminded me of the book version of Euron Greyjoy, I believe, who is sailing around like a wild man doing crazy stuff. And he has a ship named Silence. And if I remember correctly, he cuts the tongues out of all of his, <laughs> all of the people that work for him on the ship, of all of his crew. Sort of similarly to Laris here, having the tongues cut out of his servants who'll be doing his nefarious deeds. Dirty deeds done dirt cheap. Oh, and now we're moving on to another rough scene. Just as the first half of this season started with a traumatic birth scene towards the end of the episode, so too does the second half of this season begin with a traumatic birthing scene towards the end of the episode which results very similarly with a dead mother and child in a failed birth this time we are in pantos as lena valerian the wife of daemon targaryen is screaming and growling and pushing with all her might trying to give birth to their third child and you can tell the doctor is starting to panic, saying, it needs to come now. You have to push now, my lady. And she's trying her best, screaming and pushing as hard as she can and collapsing onto the bed and crying as she's unable to, to push the child from her body. And uh, the doctor approaches Damon with sadness in his face, looking down, not even able to make eye contact with him as he tells him, I've reached the limit of my art. The child will not come. And he, similarly to in the scene with the death of Queen Emma, he says that there is another possible method 
where they could slice the child from the womb. But when Damon asks if the mother will survive, he says no. He laments, distraught over the situation in his own way. Ah, my brave girl. As he realizes the difficult decision ahead of him here. And in this circumstance, Damon does the opposite of his brother and tells him not to go through with it, not to kill Lena in a C-section. So that was good to see, uh, as opposed to Viserys, blinded by the visions of the prophecy, willing to sacrifice his wife on the hopes of a male heir. Damon is less, less cruel in this circumstance and uh, opts to not perform the C-section, hoping that they'll be able to get the child out and save Lena in the process. But Lena, even in her state of despair and pain, seems to hear the conversation that's occurring between the doctor and Damon as the doctor is telling him that they can't get the baby out and that the only way to potentially save the baby is to open the womb by way of the blade and she hears it and pushes herself to her feet and just exits and runs out towards the beach where Vagar is sitting and in one of the most ruthless ruthlessly emotionally heartbreaking scenes of either of the shows Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon she throws herself to Vagar's feet and pleads with the dragon to end her suffering, begging it, Dracarys! And Vagar, <laughs> the sorrowful giant who lost Meraxes, his, his sibling, and Balerion, his other sibling in the past already, understands the situation, but even so is reluctant to to do it. It seems like he developed this bond with Lena after giving up hope previously, finding renewed joy in life with his new master and this new connection. And it seems like Vagar is hesitant to set her alight because it will be at great cost to Vagar's own emotional well-being. But Lena pleads with the dragon, Dracarys! Dracarys! Shrieking that she needs this intervention. And eventually, the massive beast relents and opens its mouth, and we can see the fire burning within its gullet. Another one of these amazing effects. We saw it with Drogon and with, <laughs> with Viserion, the dead Viserion. Previously, we saw it with Dreamfire or whichever dragon it was that was in the dragon pit underground earlier. When they open their mouth and you can see the fireball starting to form somewhere deep in their throat. And uh, with sadness in its eyes, it roasts her and ends her misery and takes both Lena and her child with Dragonfire into the afterlife. And, uh, you know, it seems that this was all just too much for Lena. She, Damon didn't give her what she wanted to go home to Driftmark to give birth to her child. She's still stuck here in Pentos with no control over her position, over their location, over anything. 
And it seems like the one thing that she ha- has control of over now is her death and the way that she's going to go out. And as Viserys said, it's, it's, a wonder, it's a wonder that the dragons even obey the humans at all, considering how much stronger and more powerful they are than the humans. But as badly as Vagar didn't want to do this, it seems to understand the pain and the dire situation that Lena is in from her voice. And it follows through and breathes out the fire and just engulfs Lena right as Damon arrives on the beach to see it happen. And this is two episodes in a row I'm realizing that Damon has watched a wife perish. And yes, he killed the first one, but he also watched himself kill her. <laughs> Unless he closed his eyes as he was bashing her with the, with the, with the rock. Um, but damn, this is just an excruciating scene. And it reminded me of a similar suicide type scene that took place in Battlestar Galactica with another female character that haunts me to this day. And uh, I think this one is going to be right up there with that one in terms of hauntingness. So just as Lena had wished for, she got her dragon rider's death. Death by dragon fire, like a true warrior. It's interesting that, you know, as long as we've seen this character, Lena, she's been obsessed with the dragons, even as a child in the garden with Viserys. All she could talk about was asking him about Drogon and talking about Vagar and the, how her cries are heard in, in Spice Town. And, and in the end, even her death is at the hands of a dragon by her own command, which is bonkers. I don't, I don't know of any other characters that have self-immolated by dragon in, in Westeros or the surrounding tales. <laughs> so this is new. It's apparently a little bit different in the book. And man, this is crazy. It's a hard one to even talk about. You know, Vagar sees her stumbling towards him and winces almost as if Vagar feels her pain, which is something that we talked about in the Stepstones when Damon was struck by a flaming arrow and Caraxes shrieked in pain. It seems like Vagar feels her pain and, and knows what she's going through. And that's why she goes along with it and burns her to end it because she knows it's the only way. And uh, there seems to be this, this idea that dragons provide strength for their masters. So there's this one character who's ailing and uh, the maester or the, the king is like, get her dragon, get the dragon, you know? And there's, it seems to be implied that dragons literally strengthen and provide energy and, and, and fortification to the, to the virility of their masters. And so in, in reversal, Viserys, who used to ride Balerion, the Black Dread, you know, maybe he was a stronger man in those days with the influence of Balerion invigorating his soul and his life force. And you got to wonder, when Balerion died, 
How did that affect Viserys? Did it drain him of some of his life force and leave him weaker than he otherwise would have been, which may have affected the way that he ruled the kingdoms, for instance? Would he have been a better leader, more decisive, more strong, if he still had his dragon energy coursing through his soul? Interesting ideas to contemplate. But, you know, these <laughs> these dragons are digital and they don't exist and they're just a figment created by pixels but somehow they've imparted so much emotion and feeling into the expressions of vagar here who's struggling in the darkness with this situation as she comes to grasps and comes to terms with what she has to do here to help her master with the sweet release of death from the uh, the horrible situation that she finds her in uh just the the watching the progression of emotions across Vagar's face here is just devastating and only accentuated by the cries of Lena screaming for death on her knees begging the dragon to burn her crazy and the sorrowful moans in Vagar's voice as he's like no I don't want to do this. But he has to. Oh, it's so brutal. And eventually, Lena stops stops crying Dracarys and just goes silent and makes eye contact with Vagar. And they seem to, like, have this moment of truth and reconciliation where Vagar realizes that, you know, this is the only way. And, uh... He's just got to do it. And he opens his mouth and... Uh, and as she's engulfed in flames and Damon watches in horror, she is effectively vaporized by the, the flames from Vagar's mouth. She's kneeling and the flames wash over her and her form which is initially visible. You can see the silhouette as the flames approach. Her form just completely disappears. And it looks like she is just completely vaporized by the dragon. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. So the next scene, we find ourselves back in King's Landing as Harwin is saying his last goodbyes to his children. and. Jace seems to be realizing that this is a little unusual for the commander of the king of the the gold cloaks to be having such an intimate goodbye with them and to be speaking so um on such personal terms with him and i it it seems to be during this scene that Jace is realizing that this is actually his father and Rhaenyra Seems too sad to speak as Harwin is saying goodbye to his children. He leans over the newborn babe and says that he will be a stranger the next time we meet. Which is interesting because the stranger in the faith of the seven is the god of death. <laughs> and, and we know what's about to happen with, with Sir Harwin. So he's not wrong about this. But Rhaenyra is too... Uh, upset to even speak and stands in dumbfounded silence as Sir Harwin 
bids her and his children goodbye, picks up his sword and leaves the room. And Jace runs out into the hallway after his father, who he doesn't know for sure is his father, <laughs> but he's watching him leave. And Rhaenyra follows out behind him and is like, we will exchange letters by Raven. I Won't that be fun? <laughs> and he just straight up asks her, is Sir Harwin strong, my father? <laughs> and she can't answer him. Oh my God, it's so cruel to leave your child wondering. And uh, it's sort of similar to, you know, it, it's, it kind of reminds me of Ned Stark, who's like, I'll tell you about your mother the next time we meet. meet. <laughs> I promise. Just like Sir Harwin Strong says, he says, <laughs> he says to Jace, I will return. I promise. Just like Ned Stark promised Jon Snow. And he never returned either. What a bummer. So he's left there with his father leaving, asking if he's his real father, asking if he's a bastard. And Rhaenyra tells him, you're a Targaryen. That's all that matters. So she doesn't deny it. She doesn't confirm it. And she lies to him. She says he's a Targaryen, but he's not. He's like, you may think he is. The world may think he is, but he's not. He's not a Targaryen. And what he wouldn't be a Targaryen anyway, because it's only upon seating the throne that the Valerian children would be becoming, would become Targaryens according to the agreement between Corlys and Viserys, if I remember correctly. So, man, brutal. Kid will be wondering for the rest of his life, potentially. Well, <laughs> maybe not so much if the truth ends up coming out, which seems inevitable at this point. And Rhaenyra knows that the walls are closing in. Even her kids are starting to figure out the truth. <laughs> and all she's done is tried to protect them and insulate them from the reality of the situation. But it's not working, and she knows it's not working, as even the children are asking now if they're bastards. And she's like, shit, we got to get out of here. Which brings us to the next scene, as she comes outside to find her husband, <laughs> Sir Lenor, <laughs> sword fighting with his, <laughs> with his bromigo and <laughs> the other half of his bromance, <laughs> Carl. <laughs> and ooh boy, things are about to get serious. As Rhaenyra comes out and she's like, we're finished here. We're leaving. <laughs> and Lenor asks, well, what, what have you offered? Jason, Helena, the marriage proposal. And she's like, nope, I've been undermined. I made a spectacle. She got suckered into making this ridiculous offer that never had a chance of succeeding. And just the fact that she lowered herself to making that offer and then begged by adding in the potential of dragon eggs. It, it was a total, like, a total spectacle. Like she says, everybody knows that Harwin is the father now. Otherwise, Rhaenyra would never have panicked and made that, that offer. And uh, so, correctly, she's like, you know, they're whispering about me in the corridors. Corridors. Uh, we got to leave. We, <laughs> we should have left years ago. And Lenor brings up that she had said, she's always said that they didn't leave because the second they left, Alicent would pour her honey in her father's ear. Which is <laughs> probably true. I mean, if she hadn't been rearing bastards, then maybe Allison wouldn't have cared as much. But um, 
Allison's fearing for her children's life thanks to being scared shitless by her father, Otto, before he left King's Landing. And uh, so Rhaenyra takes Lenor's words and <laughs> repeats them back to him, saying, the wise sailor flees the storm as it gathers. And if, as she starts to walk away, she turns back to him and tells him, Lenor, bring him, meaning his lover, Carl, who's standing <laughs> just nearby. And uh, she says, we'll need every sword we can muster. And she knows that war is inevitable at this point. She made a big mess of the whole situation. And she she knows that that it's all coming back to blow up in her face at this point. And they're going to need every sword, every dragon, every element of strength that they can. They're going to go to Dragonstone. They're going to fortify it. And they're going to try to hold hold down the fort and hold their own to withstand whatever onslaught may be coming their way because word is basically out at this point and the fishwives are going to be talking <laughs> as Lionel Strong said the whisper and whispers in the corridors as Rhaenyra said will only grow louder and everybody is going to know the truth within days from this point and it's only going to be made more intense by what happens in the next scene. Ominous strings play as the strong procession arrives at Heron Hall with a couple of creepy tongueless guys watching in from the distance. <laughs> and the ruins of Heron Hall are crazy looking as the we see the procession of horses and carriages riding towards the former home of Heron Hoare. So we get a shot starting from one of the tongueless guy's faces and panning down and down and down until we see the pin that's pinned to his chest on the fabric of his cloak, which is the firefly, the self-appointed sigil of Laris Strong. <laughs> oh man, shit is about to get fiery! And oh man, Lionel Strong wakes up in the middle of the night coughing and arises as he hears the screams of his son Harwin from the next room over and smoke is billowing in through his door. And Harwin's trapped in a burning room yelling, I will burn, help! And as hard as Lionel tries, he can't bust his way through the door. They've each been locked into their chambers, it seems, by the Firefly crew who slink off into the shadows and disappear. And unable to escape, Harwin shrieks in horror as flaming debris and timbers fall on him from above as the floor above collapses and crushes him to death with Lord Lionel soon to follow. And it's as Rhaenyra and her family arrive at Dragonstone that we begin to hear <laughs> possibly the creepiest monologue in all of Game of Thrones or House of the Dragon with Laris Strong talking about children amidst a montage of horror as Viserys copes with the loss of, of Rhaenyra leaving. I don't know if it's... He's, he looks down at a ring on his hand and kind of tears up and shudders as he begins to cry and 
kisses his the ring on his finger. I don't know if he's lamenting if it was Emma's ring or if it's a ring of Rhaenyra's or what, but it seems that Rhaenyra leaving, maybe it was Emma's ring and Rhaenyra leaving has triggered a remembrance of the loss of his, you know, of his wife, Emma, and his blonde companion, <laughs> his Targaryen blonde companion, leaving his side, whether it's his wife or his daughter. And he seems distraught as he notices a rat perched up on the hearth, crawling around and listening. And uh, <laughs> very ominous imagery. And amidst also in this montage of things occurring during Laris's monologue, we're seeing the fallout at Harrenhal with just a ton of burned bodies and people being carried out from the towers and the castle wrapped up in, in death shrouds. And, uh, oh man, what a mess. We also see the charred remains of Lena Valerian, Damon's wife, on the beach where Vagar burned her. And we see their children, Rayla and Bela, crying atop the battlements in sorrow. And Daemon is standing with them, but he kind of turns and walks away, turning his back on them and leaving them alone in sorrow, which seems rather cold and and ominous <laughs> as well. So who knows? what his role will be with them in the future. Like, does he even love his kids? I don't even know. Like he seems pretty, um, pretty uncaring towards them in this scene, which I'm hoping doesn't really, isn't really the case and that we'll see him consoling them more in the future or, or comforting them more in the future potentially. But he kind of just leaves them atop the battlements here, which is messed up. And man, this is just the most creepy monologue of all time here with Laris. Oh, as he says, what are children but a weakness, a folly, a futility? Through them, you imagine you cheat the great darkness of its victory. You will persist forever in some form or another, as if they will keep you from the dust. But for them, you surrender what you should not. You may know what is the right thing to be done, but love stays the hand. Love is a downfall. Best to make your way through life unencumbered, if you ask me. And holy crap, <laughs> talk about just like the, man, the sketchiest dude in Westeros is Laris Strong, the kinslayer. <laughs> Wow. Love is a downfall. Love is the death of duty. Sort of mirroring or uh, paralleling that theme. You may know what the right thing is to be done, but love stays the hand, which is why Lionel Strong was would would no longer be able to give unbiased advice to the king because he knows what the right thing would would be to be to do, expose the truth, reveal the bastards but they're his grandchildren and he loves them. And so he can't do it. He can't rat them out. He can't rat out Harwin. Alicent knows deep down probably that Aegon was the instigator with the pink dread, but she couldn't face the truth. She blamed her the grandchildren. Love stays the hand and caused her to protect her own son. Viserys knows deep down that his grandchildren are bastards. 
but love stays the hand. He doesn't punish Rhaenyra. He doesn't reveal the truth. He works desperately to maintain a peace and forge peace and an alliance between Rhaenyra and Alicent because he loves them, even though he knows the truth and what the right thing is that needs to be done. But love stays the hand. So this uh, creepy speech here by, <laughs> by Laris seems to wrap up or like tie it together. One of the main themes of this episode, which is love being uh, the death of duty. Again, love staying the hand of justice. And uh, Alicent, when it comes down to it, she <laughs> she's going to say, justice be done, may the heavens fall. And fall they will. So as he wraps up his little monologue here, Queen Alicent is <laughs> putting the pieces together of what's happening. And she's like, she must have just found out about what happened at Harrenhal and the fire and how Harwin and Lionel are both dead because she's just like, they're dead. And creepy Laris looks up. You've heard the stories of Harrenhal, your grace. It was built in hubris by Heron the Black as a monument to his own greatness. Blood mixed into the mortar. It is said to be a cursed place. That it passes judgment on all those who pass beneath its gates. And she's like, oh my god, this guy is a lunatic. He just killed his own family, his father and his brother. He just had them murdered. And I'm involved. And her hands are wrapping around her throat in horror as she's realizing all this. And she's like, you, you passed judgment. And <laughs> in a, in a Jack and Hagar style delivery, he says, the queen makes a wish. What servant of the realm would not strive to fulfill it? And she's like, oh my God. He's like, he's blaming it on her. Like, you're the one who, who asked me to do this. And she's like, no, no, like, I, 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 I did not wish for this. I didn't ask for you to do any of this. And he's like, he's just like, I assume you will write your father now. <laughs> just so casual about the whole thing. She's like, dude, what the hell? Like, how did I get roped into all of this? And the psychopath is sitting in front of her, plucks the flower from the Malvales plant that he had remarked on during their first encounter in the godswood, it seems like some of this plant is, uh, has been trimmed and is being displayed in this room where they're having their little meetings. And he starts smelling the flower creepily. He's like, I feel certain that you will reward me when the time is right. <laughs> and she's just like beside herself because she all she's done is play by the rules. All she's done is try to be honorable and and do the best for her house as her father and, and her uncle wished and played her part and, and spread her legs and sat underneath the rotting man and birthed the children and stayed cooped in the tower. And she's been trying to make honesty and decency prevail. And now she finds herself dragged into this mess on the culpable end of a horrible deed because she got involved with this psychopath and didn't realize what he was capable of and what he would do to manipulate things for her benefit. And it's like, yes, she's responsible, but 
at the same time, no, she's not because she didn't ask for any of this. So what's she going to do? She, she could, she could out Laris to everybody and, and, and expose him, but at what cost? And without an ally like him, how much power would she lose? So it, it seems to me that as honorable and as decent as she's tried to be, that she made a deal with the devil here. And in the end, it looks like she's going to be forsaking her own values and her own honor in the quest for power to protect her children. And um, even though she didn't want to lower herself to Rhaenyra's level by accepting a bastard to marry her trueborn daughter, she's now sunk to a low level herself by being involved with this murderous plot to eliminate the hand of the king and the father of the princess's bastards. So bad news all around. Bad news all around. Oh, man. <sighs> this show is pretty awesome. <laughs> I will say that. What a mess. How many, like, how many times have I said that through this episode? This whole situation is just such a mess. <laughs> Oh, man. I want to know, how do you guys like this series so far in comparison to Game of Thrones? Uh, we got more dragons right off the bat. Scheming is just as intense and just as crazy. I don't know. It's a toss-up between the two for me at this point. This show's been really good so far. But yeah, if I had to pick a top five, it would be the concept of love, overpowering duty, and blinding you to the truth. It would be the fiery death by dragon scene with Lena, which was horrible, but also beautiful in its own type of horrifying way. <laughs> you know, the understanding between man and beast, the sympathy of the dragon, like a loyal dog who will do anything for its master, realizing that the only thing that it can do to help its master is kill its master and following through with it. The creepiness of Laris Strong with his monologue and his, his treachery. The divide and the battle between Alicent and Rhaenyra and just the chaos surrounding it and the dragons flying over Pentos for just a moment of joy and exhilaration and beauty and uh, just entrancing fun and, <laughs> and aesthetics and a, <laughs> a brief respite from the horror and chaos that make up the rest of the episode. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> crazy. So crazy. So um, yeah, that'll wrap up the coverage for episode six of House of the Dragon, The Princess and the Queen. Also, I like the title, um, The Princess and the Queen, because there are a similar of a similar a number of similar titles to Game of Thrones episodes. The Mountain and the Viper was the first that comes to mind because that was the first episode I ever watched of Game of Thrones live. I got into the game late and binge watched up through season four just in time to catch up for that episode and to watch it live. And I remember just <laughs> sitting in silence as the screen went black with my jaw just <laughs> on the ground with my tongue rolling out onto the floor. Just like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and man, wow. 
Yeah. There's a whole bunch of episodes with these similar titles of something and something, two different people using imagery to describe them or titles. And uh, it's a fun scheme that they have for these episode titles. So stick with us for a brief moment. and We'll be right back for Raven's Calls. Sir Matthew of House Rep says, The cursed keep of Harrenhal claims the lives of yet more of its lords. <laughs> and I'll add, too, in a similar fashion as, uh, as Heron the Black, who was roasted in the towers. Uh, he continues, You would think that after the complete immolation of the keep from the dragon fire of the Black Dread, that they would instill some more fire safety precautions. <laughs> fire exits, <laughs> fire extinguishers, maybe like, flowing water you know oh the luxuries of the 21st century <laughs> he continues heron hall also connects the strongs with the mountain gregor clegane who is tasked by tywin to take back the keep during the war of five kings oh yeah that's where i write because it was under gregor's uh control of heron hall that we had aria who was held prisoner with Hot Pie and Lamy and the little crew of misfits, and they ended up escaping with, with the help of Jockin Hagar, the faceless man. <laughs> Sir Matthew says, A conspiracy theory links the two Clegane brothers with the two Strongs, Harwin and Larys, with Gregor and Harwin, both the biggest and strongest knights at the time of the king in the kingdom at the time and known for purposely trying to injure combatants at tourneys. Ooh. And the name that zombie Gregor comes back is, as is Robert strong. Good point. Very interesting. If Gregor is the Harwin double, then perhaps Laris shared something in common with Sandor. What if Larry's was not born with a club foot, but his older brother earned his nickname break bones a bit earlier in life by injuring Little Laris. Ooh, that is juicy, juicy conspiracy theory. I could see that being true. Just like the mountain burned Sandor in the fire with his face over a little toy. Maybe that's why Laris was so easily uh, willing to go ahead and murder <laughs> his brother and father. Maybe Lionel didn't stick up for him as much as he would have liked. Uh, he continues to save face just like Gregor was never blamed for the hounds burns Lionel covered up the abuse of his youngest son by saying he was born crippled ooh yeah that makes sense I could see it I could see it <laughs> thank you sir Matthew always great to hear from you brother Lord Richard of House Horsfield says well 
After watching that, I need to lie down. <laughs> that was a ducking roller coaster. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, ducking, because uh, iPhones are always changing the word fucking with autocorrect into ducking. I've been meaning to start just saying ducking on the podcast uh, instead of fucking to see if anybody would get the joke. <laughs> so I'll say it here. That was a ducking roller coaster. It had it all. I think I was sweating at one point, all the emotions. Oh man, the Lena scene. That Lena scene is going to haunt me. Poor Vagar. She went out on her own terms though, and not many in the Game of Thrones universe do. Yeah, that, that Lena scene was uh, excruciating, like I said. It's going to stick with me too, for sure. Lord Richard continues, I was skeptical of the time jump, to be honest, but the writers delivered yet again. No Damon shenanigans this week, so fingers crossed he's back at it next week. Also, a special applause for Emma Darcy and Olivia Cook. Just wow. The screen presence from Emma is just amazing. Team Ray Ray, ride or die. <laughs> Great to hear from you, Lord Richard. Thank you so much for writing in. Great feedback, as always. And yeah, the, the new actresses had some, <laughs> some great performances. Really good stuff. Lady Lori of House Perkins Price says, There was a lot going on with this episode, but it was a good one. Alicent went into full Karen mode. <laughs> Rhaenyra's ego and pride has led her to making some very stupid decisions. Sir Crispy <laughs> is a whiny little bitch. Laris is creeping like Littlefinger. And Viserys is even weaker and looks like a white. Yeah, he's got the straight golem hair. Literally like wisps of hair just dangling like golem in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> He's even kissing his ring at the end, like, my precious. <laughs> <laughs> Lady Laurie continues, I was shocked by the deaths of the Strongs. I did not see that coming. And I felt so sad for Lena when she begged her dragon for her death. It was great to see the kids and more dragons, of course. I can't wait to see what's next. I'm right there with you, Lady Lori. I did not see the deaths of the Strongs coming. Even when we saw the, the tongueless guys on the, uh, on the hillside watching them arrive at Hall, I didn't put the pieces together, you know, until the, the room was burning and Harwin was trapped. And I was like, oh, my God. And when they did the zoom down the guy's vest or uh, chest and to see the, the firefly pin on his, on his breast... At first, I thought it was his tongue that was that was on display, pinned onto his his <laughs> shirt, which would have been super hardcore. But yeah, uh, <laughs> great feedback and awesome to hear from you, Lady Lori. Thanks so much for writing in. All right, next we have a voicemail from Archmaster Stitches. Archmaster Stitches here with his weekly feedback, guys. Yo, holy crap! What an amazing episode. <laughs> totally. Um, right off the bat. Uh, I know last week y'all said that as long as like events of the book have happened in the episode, it's not that much of a spoiler. But just in case you want to know nothing about the book, you know, somebody listen to this, skip ahead. Well, thank you for the uh, warning. Because, yeah, dude, they took the fire in Heron Hall and made it way more dark. Like in the Ooh. book, it's hinted that Damon might have started it out of jealousy of Harwin Strong sleeping with Rhaenyra. Makes sense. Or at Corliss, I think, 
that he might have done it because of this guy sleeping with his son's wife. Sullying his legacy. Having some dude dispel his brother and his father just, you know, gain more favor and play the Game of Thrones, (laughs) dude. That took the textbook that this stuff is based off of and just elevated it to a way that only a cinematic universe can. <laughs> I'm so, so Dude, pleased. That was crazy. With this. Glad uh, you're liking this it, guy bro. makes Littlefinger look like a punk. <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm happy with it. And what's up with the, the, the little beetle sigil thing on his cane that he had like... I feel like that is kind of dumb. Like I'm going to send these guys to to do this stuff. It's kind of self incriminating if they <laughs> yeah, get caught. But oh man, I guess it's funny. That's hilarious. Uh, yeah, man, I loved it. I love the time jump. I love the casting for all the kids. I think it's so cool yeah, seeing they, like all these little kids that are in the book. They all really life. did do a great job. Uh, great performances. Yeah. I mean. <sighs> I got so much to say, but obviously I want to do like a 10 minute freaking phone call, but you guys are doing such a good job week to week diving deep in it. I love these two and three hour episodes y'all got. It just feels like I, you know, someone gets it, you know? Well, I'm glad you're anyway, enjoying great it. Great job. Uh, I have to say the dragon action, a little kid crawling in the pit. What oh, dragon so was that? Cool. I might've already gone over this, but you know, uh, yeah, it could have been a few. Obviously it's not Vagar. Could have been Dreamfire. I was curious, like who's the dragon that like scares Amon, maybe Vermithor, um, Sunfire. Because uh, again, I know who Amon eventually flies. Ooh, I uh, don't. Uh, yeah. Anyway, no spoilers. Oh, spoiler like, territory. So I just don't know who that dragon is because the lighting and all that kind of stuff. I was kind of curious. Maybe that's just one of the ones popping out eggs. Um, <laughs> but yeah, speaking of Vagar, dude, what the age on that guy and the, the just the oh yeah, and so deviating from the book. So much going on, going crazy. Deviating from the book with the the way uh fucking uh, Lena Damon's wife goes out so like a boss I think she like collapses on some steps in the book uh, you know and this they're like ooh. she's like fuck no burn me oh. I'm a dragon rider classic man this this, this show if it keeps Beautiful. going people are gonna be like game of what <laughs> I mean it's just amazing amazing game of who anyway all right I'll talk to you guys next week bye. All right, Johnny, Archmaster Stitches, always great to hear from you, brother. And you're welcome to 10 minutes in any of our episodes. Don't feel like you have to shorten your comments. We're we're always happy to hear everything you've got to say, brother. <laughs> so thank you so much for sending your voicemail. I look forward to hearing it every week. <laughs> All right, that's our show, episode 126. Thanks for listening, everybody. A huge thank you to John Bailey, the epic voice guy from the Emmy-nominated Honest Trailers for announcing our show. And many thanks to our epic patrons on Patreon. Sirenicide, Lord John of House Grills, Sir Matthew of House Rep, Lord Jeremiah of House Becker, and the last High Gardener of High Garden, Sir Corey Eugene of House Coon. And a special thanks to Tarot Spirit for your donation as well. On another note, if you like my take on things, you might be excited to learn that I'm working on a project of my own. It's a series in a novel screenplay hybrid format that I'm already over 1,100 pages into writing. Just imagine the Da Vinci Code, Indiana Jones, Tomb Raider, Stargate, Journey to the Center of the Earth, National Treasure, Project Blue Book, War of the Worlds, Splinter Cell, and Independence Day, all combined into one post-World War II era epic. The Core Saga. More details coming soon. 
If you'd like to donate or subscribe to support us, you can go to paypal.me slash gompodcast or patreon.com slash gompodcasts to donate an amount of your choosing. There are links to both at gameofmicrophones.com. Doing some online shopping? Then go on over to gameofmicrophones.com, scroll down to the bottom, and click on our link to Amazon. As an Amazon associate, we earn from qualifying purchases. Any contribution you make helps, and you can help secure the continued existence of Game of Microphones. And make sure to check out Sirenicide and Hearing the Haunted at sirenicide.com and hearingthehaunted.com and everywhere you get your podcasts to hear an epic horror drama series featuring me and Archmaster Stitches and friends. Next episode, we'll be covering House of the Dragon Season 1, Episode 7, Driftmark. And we'll be recording on Monday afternoons for the rest of the season, so make sure to send us your episode feedback as quickly as possible following the show's airtime so we can include your thoughts on Game of Microphones. If you'd like to call in, you can call us at 813-JOFFREY. That's 813-563-3739. If you'd like to write in, you can email us at ravens at gameofmicrophones.com. Make sure to join us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gompodcast. Each week we'll be posting a feedback thread where you can leave your thoughts and comments on new episodes for us to read on air. Oop slap. Ow! Oh! Slapping myself over here. <laughs> you can also watch Game of Microphones on YouTube, BitChute, Rumble, and Odyssey. Audio podcasts are great, but video is better. And <laughs> there's always fun stuff going on in our video podcast. So join us. We're currently trying to build our minuscule subscriber count, so go to youtube.com slash gameofmicrophones and subscribe right now. Likes, comments, and shares are appreciated. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, Gab, and Minds at GOM Podcast, and we're on Tumblr, too, at Game of Microphones. All right, that's our show. Thanks for listening. You may know what is the right thing to be done, but love stays the hand. Love is a downfall. Best to make your way through life unencumbered, if you ask me. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.